No rules, no network, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And look at this. For the first time in a very, very long time, no wait, or at least not a long wait between episodes. As We're back after our big season premiere last week. I'm not hearing any dishes in the background, so that's a good sign. And uh, we have an awesome episode planned for you tonight, folks, and it's going to be an absolute absolutely uh, nightmare-inducing edition of the program, haunting and frightening. I shouldn't look forward to it, but I am dying to dig into this topic with our guest, who is one of my favorite guests on the program all time. And I'm not just blowing smoke up his ass. This is true, because Gian Kassar, who is our guest tonight, he's this tenacious researcher. He's just tenacious, and he's like cold-blooded, too. And he just dives into these subjects and slices and dices them with this just surgical fashion of investigation that is uh, is awesome to me because I love his books. I read them. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is just digging deeper and deeper into the details of these cases. And he's looked at the Bermuda Triangle. He's kind of synonymous with the Bermuda Triangle. He's like the one guy left who's carrying on the torch of the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, and he's got a new book coming out. Next week, which we'll talk about later, or we can, or at least <laughs> we should mention it at the beginning. So I'll find out that so people know right away because who knows. Um, and he's also written about Bigfoot. He had an outstanding Bigfoot book, uh, Recasting Bigfoot, I believe, or uh, there may be a, a proper title of that, but it was Recasting the Bigfoot Idea and really looked at it in an incredibly interesting way. And then he looked at uh, Jack the Ripper and produced another outstanding book. So it's like the Bermuda Triangle and Jack the Ripper, dude. This is not only is he looking at classic, awesome, you know, in search of type cases, but he's giving them a modern spin and uh, he's looked into them deeper and deeper and deeper. And some people, you know, like I said, this Bermuda Triangle thing, it's no one's talking about it anymore, but Gianca Star's still looking at it. So welcome back to the program, Gian, one of my favorite guests. Also one of the toughest. You always seem like you're very serious. I try to make you laugh uh, when we do the interview, but it always is hard for me. But I enjoy talking to you so, so much. So welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back on But All of America. I'm sorry I have that reputation. I'm, I'm usually like to be humorous. That's all that gets me through all this. Because you have to consider all that I do. I'm looking into a lot of disaster. I'm looking into a lot of murder. There's really very few things I investigate that you can enjoy doing. That's that's true. I, 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 I like I, I 
prefer to be humorous, but how can you be humorous about someone when they're, you know, heads under their arm? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, that's my, that's kind of what I was alluding to here uh, when the show started, you know. It was like, I'm really looking forward to talking to you tonight, but at the same time, it's like, I, I feel guilty because this is a horrifying uh, subject we're going to get into. But as I said, you do some outstanding work, and, you know... What I like is that you do these different topics. It's unbelievable. Some, you know, anybody else would just rest on their laurels as the Bermuda Triangle guy, but you've, you've, you're back doing that again. But you've long since moved on to other things and done other topics. So I think that's just awesome because that's kind of what we try to embrace on the show. And we'll we'll pivot right. Well, first of all, quickly give me the uh, give me the new the new Bermuda Triangle book. Uh, Give me, a, give me a shout out for that here at the beginning, so folks, because you know sometimes people they drop off the episode later, so I want to make sure they know that there's a a new Bermuda Triangle book from you coming out uh, next week, right? It is, yes, it's my sequel in the trilogy. I cleverly named it the Bermuda Triangle Two. Oh, nice. <laughs> and it's an odyssey of unexplained experiences at sea. It should be out next week, and it'll be available online or in any bookstore that still exists, if there are any out there. So you can order it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and whoever, whoever carries it online. It'll be yeah. in hardcover and paperback. Nice. 280 pages and a lot of new cases, new expanding on theories. And uh, it's a subject matter I really have trouble getting through anymore because I'm so I'm so done with it after years. 27 years now I've been investigating. Wow. Uh, all these Kolchakian things. I think it was the reporter you put on to me once that called me the real-life Kolchak, and that kind of stuck. I like being like being called that because it kind of explains that I will investigate anything that's, you know, worthy. It's, it has some kind of truth behind it, you can tell, and you can solve it. You have a chance of solving it. I'm not after just, uh, you know, enjoying some chill and thrill that can go nowhere. I mean, what's the point? That's what I like about you, man. You're trying to solve these things. That's You hit the nail on the head right there because it's like not only is he investigating things with surgical precision, but he's looking, he's, you know, he's trying to actually solve it. It's not just, he's not just navel-gazing at the mystery and going, isn't this interesting? It's like, yeah, it's interesting, but he's trying to get to the bottom of it, and I, can, I have huge respect for that. So what's the journey. That's what makes it enjoyable, a quest. You mean you're going somewhere. Just, just just spinning a theory, just spinning mystery, you're not going anywhere. It's That's for campfire stories at night. But I like to really go somewhere and try and come to the end of the journey and have solved it at least sufficiently to my my abilities and then be able to convey it to my audience. So with true crime, it's different. What we're going to talk about tonight, it's a whole different thing. You have to have a thesis ready to independently deliver to the appropriate jurisdiction if you want to do this seriously, which is what I'm doing. Uh, And in this case, we're going to talk about someone that I'm not even going to write a book about, but I did it online. It was to be a very complex online presentation on my Quester file site. That would have video, and that would have all these pictures and text and of the police cases. And it uh, almost destroyed me for years doing this because it's 50 cases of rape and 12 murders and it's not just that. It's the way this guy went about doing it. His calculated stalking. I called him the real-life Michael Myers. And I think that's what really clicked with people finally. And the FBI, of course, uh, over a year ago already had that uh, national press conference to reawaken the case. And then their 48 Hours recently did a big 
show on it, mm-hmm. and I think Paula Zahn is going to be doing one soon again with one of the guests calling up tonight. Yes, yes, and, we're going to. So a this is the later. East Area Rapist original Night Stalker. Right, right, the, right. Let me, the Night Predator. Let me set you up though, Gian, so I can look okay. professional. You know, I've been doing this <laughs> a long time. People are going to think they're going to be like, "Geez, dude, this guy still sucks at this." Uh, <laughs> so. Talk about, this is the new thing. This is what we're going to be discussing tonight. We're going to take a crazy journey, folks, and it's going to be terrifying. Um, I was just chilled to the bone last fall when Gian turned me on to this stuff. To start, to get meta, um, you know, how did you, because you're kind of from that area. I don't know California geography well, but I know you're relatively in that area. So you're from I am right now, yeah. I could go to all the crime scenes. Yeah. Um, how so did it is you get... Sacramento area. How did, how, did you, how did you get interested? How did you get like? How did you decide to go after this case? I was winding down my Zodiac killer investigation. I was stifled at trying to get handwriting on my prime suspect, and I came across a self-published book by Lieutenant Larry Crompton called Sudden Terror. I had gotten into in 2010. I had really gotten into true crime. I was bored with all the Kolchakian type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I had wondered, you know, whatever happened to that guy as a kid, I remember him vaguely in the, the hood and all that, and he was threatening to kill kids with a sniper rifle. So I really got heavily into the Zodiac after doing Jack the Ripper. Anybody does cold case, they have to start with Jack the Ripper. Right, right. That is the ultimate uh, cold case. And so I published that book. I was writing Horoscope, which is my book on the Zodiac, and I needed to change... Uh, I needed to clear my mind, and I came across Lieutenant Larry Crompton's book, Sudden Terror. It was about a case he worked on called the Hysteria Rapist, or known as EAR, which is not a very good handle, but that's what they gave him. Right, right. Also known as the original Night Stalker down south when he turned murderer. And he uh, he was uh, one of the Contra Costa County sheriffs, and he had saved all the OG logs, the officer-generated report. So he had all the details. He changed the names of the people involved, but and he fictionalized, it was a bit of a fictionalized account with made-up detectives based on real-life people. Right, right. All the dialogue in that book spoken by the villain, back and forth from the victims, was maintained authentic. And so it was reliable to that extent, and he was mentioning street names where these occurred. Mm. And so I could finally winnow this down. I was so fascinated that there was this guy who was really the real-life Michael Myers. He stalked at night. Nothing stopped him. He militarily uh, sized up a house in a neighborhood, found out when the victim was going to be alone, and he would get in the house and uh, terrorize it. He was a sexual terrorist. He did not just rape them, but he terrorized. He ransacked the house. He would tie them up. He would put plates on their back so he would hear them you know, crash if they moved while he was going about the house, eating their food, doing whatever. And... Uh, or he would come by sometimes, quietly pad by them when they were on the floor tied up, and he would snip scissors scissors by their ear just to terrify them. And in between this, he was raping them. <clears throat> and so he was not just a rapist. This was not just a guy waylaying women on a jogging path or something. This was someone who militarily sized up a neighborhood, several victims, and then winnowed it down to one particular victim and struck and did this repeatedly, 
at night or early morning until he sent Sacramento into a panic. They couldn't stop him. He expanded from there. They gave him the title East Area Rapist because he struck in the East Area of Sacramento in the suburbs there, Rancho Cordova, Carmichael, Citrus Heights. And he expanded over Northern California to Modesto, to Stockton, to the college town of Davis, to the Contra Costa area, Concord, down to San Jose, for a three-year period starting summer of 1976. And uh, then he vanished in Northern California in the summer of 79 and appeared uh, in October, I believe it was, 1979, in the Goleta, Santa Barbara area. And no one was sure if that was really him down there because now he started turning murder and he was killing couples. And he sized them up in the same way. Somehow he found out who they were, when they were going to be there together, and he went in and did his thing, killing with an instrument that was always on the property already. So he brought nothing there that he would leave, or leave clues, and he took nothing with him that would uh, that he could be traced with on the road. Right. So that's encapsulating what basically was a 10-year crime scene, most crime spree. Most of it was done 76 to 81. He was gone five years. He came back and he killed his final victim just a few. It was just a few days ago, 1986, May 4, May 5, 1986. Ah. And her sister will be calling up tonight. Yes, yes. Michelle Cruz is going to be calling in tonight. The last one, yeah. The sister and of so uh, that he And he struck very close to where he had killed his last victim in Irvine, California. So he stuck to his pattern, and he was successful. No one, there was never a prime suspect for this guy. Never. Although he left enough clues. Of course, there was DNA. Uh, but there was there a number of... Uh, Composites of, of someone looking, you know, stalking or prowling in the neighborhood, or just casually driving by, but no one could really be sure who it was because he always had a ski mask on or some kind of homemade mask. Always wore gloves, had a gun or knife or an ice pick, and surprised his victims while they were asleep in bed, shining a flashlight in their eyes, hissing in their ears through clenched teeth, growling through clenched teeth. So he was disguising his voice as well. And he succeeded. There's never been a prime suspect, and he's the number one serial predator in history. I was glad to hear 48 Hours say that. Some like to say he's just the number one serial predator in California history. But from my calculation, he is the number one, period. And I put that on my website repeatedly in the articles and in the introduction. And Michelle Cruz, who will be calling up tonight, told me she gave it to CBS, who did the show. She gave my website, and I know they were going through it frequently. So Nice. I'm glad they picked that up and really accentuated this real-life Michael Myers. Right. So you're saying the most stop. prolific serial predator offender, offender in, uh, in American in history. history. Yeah. Fifty rape victims that we know of, at least 12 murders, but that still is only reflecting a fraction of the stalking and prowling he did to winnow down his list. Right, exactly. This was like right, right, exactly. This was like you said earlier. It wasn't like some guy just grabbing a lady out for a jog or something. This guy was, no. he was uh, tenacious, meditative, and calculating. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's why you're the writer. You got, you got the words. Uh, yeah, I, I say that to accentuate just how evil this guy really was. This was his hobby. He obsessed on it, and he perfected it. And no jurisdiction in California could catch him. They tried to anticipate him a couple of times pretty wisely too in the Concord area I know where sheriffs even staked out uh 
a couple of potential homes because this guy would get in the home sometimes days or a week in advance. He would hide the ligatures with which he was going to bind them under sofa cushions or so forth. He would bind their, you know, blindfold them with torn towels, gag them that way. And he would uh, put this in the house first sometimes. So he'd just have to come to the house with his weapons and wake them up. And a couple of occasions, uh, homeowners realized there was something wrong. They looked under their cushions and found them, and they called the sheriffs. And the sheriffs uh, quietly staked out the house and were there one night with their guns ready, heard the dogs barking, coming closer, but he never returned. This happened at least three times that I can remember, how somehow he got wind that his next victims had been identified and uh, and he wouldn't come back. So either he monitored a police scanner and realized calls were being made to those from those homes about an intruder, or, or I don't know how. He had so many ways of well, how, trying to determine schedules. What's the sort of what's like the the profile on this guy? Like how old do we think he is? You know, what what's you know how they break it down like that? What's his you know, how big is he? What's he, is he a little scrawny guy or is he a fat guy? I know well as one to ask guy. okay. Well how old do we think he, he is? I he think was. he was a bit younger than what they estimated. They estimated late teens to early mid twenties. Most likely, uh, the way from the way he talked, his earliest victims had mentioned that he was about five nine, five ten in shoes, a thin figure, not a gym one, but an athletic one. So maybe like a swimmer's body. He was lean, but he was not a muscle builder. What I thought was interesting in the book too, or it's a, as you said, it's an online compilation, and actually, uh, well, it's you need you should like buy a URL and just direct people to that specific page because it's I have it here. Where is it? It's the They're Quester. pouring in anyway. It's the Quester files. Yeah, that's true. They just Google it, I bet. But it's the Quester files, and then you got to look around a little bit, and you'll find uh, the East Area Rapist. Yeah. I'll post the link in the chat room. But um, the one thing that stood out, first of all, your, your, your entire – collection there or your work there is absolutely unbelievable and folks listening to this if you want to get more information you got to go to john's page uh because as as i was telling somebody the other day you you visited like all these places right you visited all these mm-hmm. neighborhoods and there's like google yeah. pictures and pictures from john like essentially like showing you the point of view of this guy and what he what what he was like uh, looking at as far as how he could get out of the area and how the neighborhood was sort of set up. It's really really interesting stuff and and, and creepy as hell in a way because it's like, oh my god, you're you're in this dude's footsteps. It's like, ooh Jesus, you know. That was my that was my point. It was to stalk the ultimate stalker. I had to find out uh, how he did it. There are very few witnesses anymore, but the neighborhoods are witnesses. I felt to how he did this. He carefully assessed everything. And I began to uncover his stalking method and how he used uh, parks, which was known back then, canal trails. I discovered that he used those power pylon corridors and communities that were attached to another community by those little walkways, you know, between fences, between homes. Yeah. And uh, schools were across the way. He uh, he was very logistic in his uh, assessment of topography. Right. That's why he was so successful. Right, right, right. And the now all the stuff from the fall that when I read the the work is coming back to me. I, I should write, be writing these things down. But what I, one thing I found really interesting from your analysis is, and I hate to laugh, but it's like this guy had a different mask almost for every every crime. It's like who has that many masks? 
It's insane. Yeah. Like we're some homemade and uh, some that were not. They've got a picture. The FBI website has a picture of a couple of them that he had lost where he had put them, and uh, they recovered them in a bag in a sack as he was stalking one place. So he had a couple of. Uh, couple of extras handy just in case, but he had apparently almost always he wore a different ski mask, which is a clue, of course, how he could be getting all these ski masks, because considering how many times he struck is only a small portion of how much he was stalking. Yeah, it's like try and go get 50 ski masks, folks, yeah. different, different so, ones so, tomorrow. Some were homemade. Some were made from tarp or from a pillowcase maybe or cheesecloth was one description. So when he was jogging in the morning in uh, Walnut Creek, I believe his mask was described by the victims as a uh, cheesecloth because he came in in, in joggers attire. So I assume he was jogging out there looking normally so no one would suspect him. And so he had to have something very thin hidden under his shirt or in his jogging shorts. And it was cheesecloth or a pillowcase fit. So he'd get to the house. He would look innocent enough, I guess, get in the backyard, put the pillowcase over his head, put the eye holes in it and produce a kitchen knife from the from the drawer or an ice pick that he brought with him, and he did his thing. And it's believed, uh, or, yeah, we'll, we'll continue from that thought. It's believed that he, he would go to these houses by bicycle and park, like, further away. Is that kind of the idea? Sometimes, yeah. A number of times in the book you kind of, I thought, uh, say that there's a bicycle involved here. The car, like, he parks farther away, and then he gets in by the bike so he can get away faster or something like that to these trails. Yes, I, I think he parked strategically while he was stalking, and uh, then on the night of the attack as well, he would hop fences and have parked on the street behind where he struck. So, you know, no one would associate a car pulling up on the street where he struck. Mm. Or he would uh, park a bike down the street and maybe walk quietly through the yards Oh, his footprints would be found in neighbors' yards and so forth. Oh, he was that meticulous. He would call. These neighborhoods were vexed by hang-up phone calls, so he was not only calling the victim in advance and then hanging up, determining their routine, if they were home and when they were home. He would, he would be calling neighbors to know when they were around. And I guess he developed a very uh, complex understanding of when he could simply walk along and not be seen because he knew when people were and were not home and he would then move through yards and and that's how he remained so much a phantom. Yeah. And I say no one knows his face. We know him only by his mask, just like Michael Myers. This is a a cold hearted shadow that materialized over people's beds with a hissing clenched teeth and a ski mask and a flashlight and gun in their face. Oh. So we know him physically, tangibly only from I think a size nine shoe print is what he wore, a size nine shoe or size nine and a half. And that's basically it. And then there's some questionable composites about if this was him or was not seen walking in the neighborhood or driving prior. But physically, there's DNA, and only proof of his existence physically is that shoe print in people's yards, and the t and the horror he left, you know, behind him, and scratches on a screen. So yes. He would scratch victims, potential victims' screens where they were open in the lower left side. And I guess he was assessing the acoustics in the house or seeing if a dog would come. That's how careful he was. That's how creepy he was, man. I yeah. remember reading that on the thing, and I'm thinking, I, I ended up looking at my screens for like the next, <laughs> the next few days. Oh, I was I, like, I, I hope people aren't doing that to me. 
I know guys who read Crompton's book, Sudden Terror, who live, you know, 3,000 miles away. And after they finished it, and these are big guys, and after they finished it, they told me they went around and closed their windows and doors, whether they were in New Jersey or New York or wherever. And we're talking 40 years ago in California. That's how this uh, a detailed description of this guy's method, unrelenting method, really freaked people out. It's it's really scary because it's not it, – it, yeah. Because the whole idea that he's been in the house already, too, is even creepier. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. He committed double jeopardy, double, triple jeopardy. He was in neighbors' homes, the victims' homes prior. He, and then he would come back again. He would People would find pictures askew or missing and knew someone was in their house or a drawer that they knew had been closed, was only half closed when they came back. And, and so they knew knew someone had been there. Now, that really you know unnerves people. And then the phone calls would commence. And then he even called some of his victims later, a year or two after the fact, and said he's going to kill him. Right, right. That video, a... One of those audios is preserved online, and people can hear what apparently is his voice threatening to uh, kill victim number one. He called her again in January 1978, January 2, 1978, and he raped her on June 18, 1976. So this is what she had to deal with, and her and other victims had to deal with, not knowing if this guy was going to uh, come back. Terror was his big thing. Rape uh, was only one faction of it. Terror, they were in deeply in fear of their lives, and that's what they wanted the police to know, and that's those victims who have spoken out, wanted the audience to know that rape was really, how bad rape is, it still, it was not the worst thing. It was not what was on their mind. They were sure they were going to die, and he stayed in their homes for hours, terrorizing them. Yeah. It's creepy. I just locked my door. That's, a <laughs> That's how creepy. That's how creepy it is. Oh my god! And the scary part is, folks, that really, uh, this guy's still out there. We presume, like we don't. I mean, we're going to keep talking about the case, but that's the. I mean, like we, we're talking about it because it happened a long time ago. But he he got away with it, folks. This this sicko is out there. That's why you got to lock the door. That's why you lock the door. People think this is so far because it's 40 years ago and it's culture shock to think of 1976 and 1977 again and all that. But if he was as young, if he was his late teens and early 20s, he's just pushing 60 now. So he could, uh, if he kept up his figure, he, if, he, if he's still alive, he could very much be with us. Remember, he, he spanned out his crime spree over 10 years. So he was last known to be around in 1986. And so 30 years he's been silent, and uh, but that doesn't mean he's not there. Well, part of me wonders. I'd be interested because I don't know if it – well, I'm sure but maybe by now they would know. But it's like when the crimes stop in the early 80s there um, with Michelle's sister, does – like the thing is they didn't know he was connected to the two sprees. You know, until much later, right? Yeah, a few suspected it at the time because of the uh, original M.O. when he first struck in Goleta. It was just uh, his usual M.O. He didn't kill the victims. They actually got away from him. And then the next victims, a couple months later, he he did kill. He shot them. Uh, and then he started changing his M.O. He would bludgeon the other ones. And it was basically imitating the bedroom basher who was afoot at that time. So there was some confusion whether this was the same guy. There were some detectives who suspected it. So he was given the handle Night Stalker by the Sheriff's Department. Uh, That's why he has two names. It, it, did, it didn't hit. It didn't t take with the press because this guy spread his 
crimes out over from Irvine, which is South LA area, to Santa Barbara, which is far in the north. And so it, he never caught on with the press. He was not a very distinct serial killer in the L.A. area, despite having 10 victims, ultimately. And uh, so it never caught on, and Richard Ramirez was then given the handle, the Night Stalker. And the law enforcement really wouldn't recognize that because they had given it to this guy already. So eventually they had to call him original Night Stalker just to <laughs> just to separate him from Ramirez. But this guy really earned the handle Night Stalker. He has a very Spinal Tap-esque name where he has to... <laughs> It's very part of the thing, and I was—I know—I think I read this on your stuff. I think I said it, they said it on Forty Eight Hours. It's like part of the problem with tackling this case in a way is the name problem. You yeah. know, it's like you can't—it doesn't roll off the tongue. You don't really have a good—I don't mean you. I mean like anyone. You know what I'm saying? It's like no, no one no, really. I've, I've, I've said it many times. Uh, e a r o n s—that's an acronym. Original. East Area Rapist. I kind of like that talker. the best, but now you know. But when you're talking about it with people who look at it, you know, they just call it earons, right? Is that kind of? Yeah. So I called him the Night Predator, hoping that would catch on because that's close to Night Stalker, but it really reveals he's the Night Predator. Uh, it does with some people. Some people call him uh, oh, Night, Night Stalker. Yeah. Some call him the Golden State Killer, which I will not because it's giving the nickname of this state to a killer like he's an official product of the state, and I don't think that's pretty good. And some call him the Diamond Knot Killer, which I think is a little too, uh, it's not very popular, but it sounds a little too uh, crime noir. But no one knows, what, you know, he, that's one reason why he never really got as famous as he should be, so that people would have, you know, tried to out him a lot sooner than now, is that he has a very unwieldy handle. It's not like the Zodiac or Jack the Ripper or something catchy that people are going to wish to inquire about. The closest I've come to really getting people's attention with a handle is by calling him, you know, the real-life Michael Myers, because right away they can crystallize that in their mind. Yeah, that's what true. We're talking about. That's true. Um, oh, so I was, I, I had, lo- I think we got off on a sidetrack there, but that's cool because uh, I was wondering, stops in '81. Given that they didn't even connect the two in California, is it possible this guy just moved across the country and kept doing what he was doing? I, there are those who have tried to stalk a trail, and I, I've looked into some things too. And it could be, I mean, he was gone for five years. Where was he from, you know, late 81 to 85, 86, when he returned and struck only a mile from his last Irvine victim's house? So he didn't, it's not like he was around the L.A. area learning even incidentally hmm. new neighborhoods. It's like he really was gone from L.A. and didn't know it very well. And, and wanted to strike again, so he picked a neighborhood that he knew from years ago. So where had he been? Well, I don't think L.A., and I don't know where he could have been for five years. Uh, and, you know, people speculate jail or the military, but uh, so far no trail has uncovered him. And I happen to know, I talked to one of the detectives, and he said every six months they put his DNA through CODIS, which is the federal system, to see if it makes a hit. And this guy was never arrested for a felony that required... DNA be taken. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. So he's just vanished. So he was that careful. And we really have no. Aside from the, the DNA, is all we have in a sense, you know. Legally, yes, that could that could pinpoint the guy. Now, forty years later, it would be DNA. How do you even now? Because you have a suspect in this thing, right? You say you get I do. Into yes, this. I have a group of them with one prime suspect in auto wrecking. And so my pathway to that is matching. 
uh, handwriting. We actually have his handwriting from one of his botch up. Ostensibly, it's his handwriting. This is from uh, the sheet of paper he, that was like the the school assignment. Yes, that in Danville, when he botched up one of his attacks and fled, the dog, the bloodhound, was able to trace to where he had parked. And there were these papers there that presumably were his. There's a map on one side that looks like he was working a neighborhood and he even blotted out the second house from the corner, which was the house he usually struck. He had a pattern, and it was usually a corner house hmm. or a house right next to it. And so it seems that these are legitimate and that it would presumably be his handwriting on this other school assignment. So if I can match that to one of my suspects, I guess I would have enough for a thesis then to recommend. In my case, for the main one, it would have to be an exhumation. Oh. Uh, if it's one of my, if it's one of the other guys that's involved, that's within my list. Uh, they're alive, and that's why I don't even speak of it because I don't need to alert anybody. I don't speak of them at all. All right. So you have, so you have multiple suspects, as you're saying, not necessarily yes, that they were working together, or were they? They they all fit. They're not working together, okay. but they fit what I would deem would be the uh, the critical clues. This guy, you know, he he was always seen in a jalopy, or someone I should say was seen stalking a neighborhood in a jalopy. Before yeah, the, the villain, as we call him. <clears throat> yes, the miscreant, and uh, and it was always when the license plates were traced, they were they went nowhere. They were deregistered, or they went to a wrecked car that was last known to be in a wrecking yard uh, in Lodi or even as far as Windsor, California, which is up from the Bay Area. So this guy drove around pretty much, and I started tracking auto wreckers and someone who would be in a position in a family auto wrecking business that he would be driving clunkers. <coughs> some of these guys dealt in used cars as well. You know, they picked some of these cars apart, or they were selling used cars on another lot. They were all interrelated. And uh, so that's that's what led me to my my group and my main POI is that they were very much a part of the auto wrecking business and could have been driving around Northern California making parts deliveries or picking up parts from these wrecking yards and pinching a license plate mm. when they wanted. And then this guy would put it on the car he was driving and he was completely safe. If the license plate was taken down, as it was on occasion, it would be tracked to the wrecking yard where the car had been taken in. Jeez, didn't they do any further investig investigation than that? Should they? Have to well, apparently, you know, I, I'm, I would assume they looked into auto wreckers. I mean, who else could you know, be doing this over Northern California? It's not like it just it was one occasion. I happen to know it went to uh, one place in Lodi, one place in Windsor. Uh, there was another location. So we're, it's over Northern California. This guy was driving. Assume. Uh, in work, and he's now, striking them during this time in Modesto and Stockton and Davis, and going back and forth, and that's quite a distance going back and forth from Davis to Modesto. Yeah. Modesto is about an hour or more south of Sacramento, and Davis is to the west of Sacramento. Now, talk about the voice because uh, it's creepy as sin, and you, you seem you, you rather than what I like about you is rather than just say oh it's creepy like you you have sort of an idea of why he has this creepy voice and so I don't want to be a spoiler I, I so t tell us this about guy this. was this guy was so logistic that there has to be a reason why he always disguised his voice and it would be that that would be a way he could be 
identified by his victims. They couldn't see his face. They couldn't see anything. He never took his gloves off. So what's one way they could identify this guy? Well, he might have had a very distinctive voice, and some of them thought he was lowering his voice, that he had a higher-pitched voice or something about it. And this guy calling up the "gonna kill you" call, which you can play, I suppose it is on YouTube. Yeah, we'll play it on the. Uh, we'll play it at some point. I'll stick it in. Oh, I guess I could do it while we're on the phone. Yeah, but uh, go on. I'll look it up while we're on the phone. In any case, if you hear his voice, he is trying to make it. It does sound like a young voice, and it sounds very nasally. It sounds like he's stuffed up to me. Pretty bad, but it sounds young, and uh, it sounds a little effeminate. And he's, you know, she's saying he's going to kill him, and he's calling him the B word, and this is lower down hissing, and this is, if this is the right guy, and it does seem it is him, uh, this is what the victims heard right up in their ear when they were blindfolded, with scissors snipping by them, or he was running the knife along their throat and along their their thigh, or an ice pick that he threatened to stick through their head, or a gun right up to their face, and then he'd rape them and then wander around the house and ransack it. And so you get an idea of what the victims heard in the early morning hours when they were disturbed. Should I play it? It's really creepy. Yeah, go ahead. All right, all right, I'll play it. Hopefully I'll sure, put my phone this. up to it, folks, so you can hear it uh, up to my speaker. All right, this is how high-tech we are on the show, Gian. So hold on a second. So enjoy your nightmares tonight, folks. John, what did we just do to these people? That that's horrifying. Yeah, he and he would be doing that for hours with them. And doesn't it sound like a young voice to you? I don't know what it sounds like. I've listened to it several times, to be honest with you, uh, before we <laughs> before we did the show. It, it sounds like someone trying trying to. Yeah, I get I get I get kind of what you're saying. Yeah. There's He's disguising his voice anyway, but it does seem like an awfully young voice to me, with a bit of you know, a bit of that nasally yeah. stuffed up. Yeah, I hear it. I hear it. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe that's why he was uh, hiding his voice, because if he was made to speak to the victims or they heard it, he might have had something so distinct they could pick him off by that. Mm. While you know, he's got them at, unless he just enjoys terror, which he obviously did. But I think he was a little more practical than that. I think he had to disguise his voice because he had a unique way of speaking. Mm. Well, it's certainly, it's frightening. And that was the call we talked about earlier uh, to the first victim, right? Yes, that was on January 2. The Voices in the Background is actually a TV movie that was on at that time. I started digging into it, and it inspired a couple of guys on the message boards who had really tried to crack what those sounds were in the back. I was trying to figure out what the sounds were, and they got involved again. And they just, I guess, pulled everything that was on TV that night, January 2, 1978. And I watched all these movies, and it is, in fact, Breaking Away, I believe, with Lee Remick. And you hear Lee Remick talking with her daughter in the background. No one was sure if that was in the background of his phone call or the victim's house or 
or what no one was sure if those were real people speaking in the background and he was trying to you know uh you know be quiet and so finally it was uh, found out by these two people on the message board that it was breaking away which did air on January 2 1978 and i assume the sheriffs knew that or they would have they just didn't mention it when they released it and so a lot of independent researchers had to go to a great length just to find that out there was a concord detective retired detective who actually was playing this repeatedly uh, in the Institute for the Blind. And they were listening to it because, of course, their hearing is much better, their perception. And they were trying to figure out who those people were in the background and what it was. So unfortunately, you know, some of the stuff that has been released was not qualified enough if not only do you have web sleuths out there trying to figure out what's going on, but you have, you know, retired and active duty detectives right. going to the Institute of the Blind and having them listen to this tape. That's a novel approach. I don't know if that, did it work? Did it help? Do we know? No, it's, in my knowledge, those two on the message boards are the ones who finally cracked it. I was trying to figure out what the words, I got some of the dialogue right and posted it on my blog and uh, was trying to speculate what it could be if it was live people or if it was television. And so that's when they really got involved again, and uh, I guess they just went through every movie that was... That's a good way to Every TV show, it. everything, and they were listening and finally picked out the exact inflections and were able to determine, I think it's about 28 minutes into the movie. Spooky. It's all spooky, man. It really is. Um, and I, I, I do want to know. I hope he's listening tonight because one one thing that I <laughs> that I noticed in the in the voluminous uh, recaps that you produced uh, of these of these various crimes, each and every one has its own page, folks, and it just gets more and more terrifying. Is that these, they repeat they re, uh, the 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 victims repeatedly mention that he has a tiny penis? So, <laughs> right? Yes, apparently yes. That it was like a roll of dimes at the best of time. A couple have said uh, that it was like a dollar bill, the length of a dollar bill, which <laughs> is, is a very different thing. Yeah. And so there's some confusion whether, you know, there was more than one guy involved, but how he could have been imitating him so perfectly. Uh, maybe it was, uh, maybe he was doing something different. I don't know how you can disguise the offending organ. Who knows? Uh, but, uh, it, and he was never always... Uh, Aroused. It, it was it was a, a part of his terror shtick. He uh, he actually raped. Uh, you know, you know. He, I think as low as as young an age as twelve, thirteen years old. So there were virgins as well, and uh, they were still afterward. That's how small he was. Oh God. Jeez. Well, there you go. So who so knows how that was involved? Yeah. In inspiring him, but certainly he. Uh, he mentally got into this. It's like it's his hobby. It was his great love. He devoted every waking hour, you would think, to doing this. If you, when people read the pages on this, they'll see how many times he's someone has reported stalking in the neighborhood before the fact. Sometimes what do you mean? Well, someone, you know, some guy chased someone out of his neighbor's yard once. Weeks oh, they never, they never the picked up on the fact that that was probably the guy at the time. Yeah. He would stalk a neighborhood uh, weeks in advance, select his victims, come back, nail one, wait a couple of weeks, and come back again. That way he was only there in the neighborhood for a certain period of time instead of being seen over a period of weeks. 
So he might come back to a neighborhood two or three times, but really have only stalked it, you know, months and months before, so that there was no real warning he was coming back. He he assessed victim number one there, two, three, and echelon, and uh, and struck his first victim. Waited weeks or months, came back to the second one, and so he had a very careful stalking pattern done, where he would not overstalk a neighborhood and therefore be identified. Yeah, and he bounced around a lot, so it was kind of yeah. So he stalked many neighborhoods while he was striking in one neighborhood. Well, he might have been stalking another one that very day, but then struck in an older one that he had stalked already. Mm. And then, like, the layers of creepiness to this guy are unbelievable because one of the key uh, cases or one of the most interesting tales associated with this is the how he – there was, like, a community meeting uh, mm-hmm. about this guy, and then some – Dude, a husband stood up and said that he was, you know, this guy was a, a you know, a clown because he won't come and try it at a house where there's a couple. And then the next time it happened, it was a house that it was a couple, and it was that couple. So that's the Some, something like that. Yeah, he was. Is that how it works? Guy. Did I mess he, up? The it was story? the Del Deo. I think it was the Del Deo school community meeting, and he got up and chewed out the police first for not being able to stop this guy, and. uh the first couple strike was just before tax time in April 77, and the, this was victim number 23. So, no, he had already struck couples by that oh, time. Oh, okay. He struck uh, couples by victims 16 and 17. It was the paper that had said he had never struck couples before. Ah, see, fake news. I don't think that inspired him. I think he was just working his way up. It's all but right. Yes, with the Del Deo uh, school meeting, one of the persons, as I recall, that made a big stink there was later victim 20. One, twenty-two, twenty-one, in uh, Sandbar Circle. Yeah, his wife was. I should say he was. Uh, I don't know if he was tied up or if he didn't even know what was going on. Well, the other thing that's really creepy is like the, it, <laughs> if you're claustrophobic, this part's like really kind of gave me the shivers. Where he would make the husband lie down and he would put dishes on his back. So if he got mm-hmm. up and knocked the dishes over, then the then the villain, the miscreant, would know that the jig was up and he needed to, you know. Act fast. He would rush back to the bedroom. He would threaten to blow the guy's brains out if he did it again. Or uh, he never fled, but he would go back on a couple of occasions when he heard them rattle and fall off. He said, I'll kill your wife if you do it again. And uh, so he restacked them on there, growled in his ear, and then, you know, go blam, blam, blam with, you know, speaking to him in his ear. And uh, then he'd go back out and continue to terrorize the house. And, you know, the husband couldn't help but move. He was tied so tightly with his wrists that his hands were purple. That's how tightly this guy tied them up. And you're going to start moving, and he has these bowls and saucers piled high on the back. Well, it's going to rattle, and, of course, it did, and some fell sometimes. And he would rush back down the hallway, or he would pad back very quietly. And the husband would know he was there, and suddenly he would jolt him, scare him. and Everything would rattle, and the guy says, these, you know, fall, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to blow your brains out. Or I'm gonna, you know, go cut her throat or something like that. Imagine going through that for hours while your hands are turning purple and you're tied up like a, a hog. Yeah, yeah, we can't stress enough. These things weren't just like in and out deals. I mean, we talked about it earlier, but this, these were hours long ordeals for these people. Yeah, this was. I think the mayor of Davis is the one that said this guy's not a rapist. He's a sexual terrorist. This, and he's very clever. And that's how he operated. 
And in my opinion, he even uh, got in good with some of the victims' dogs. A few of them had big dogs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they never, they never caused a problem with him. I think he was feeding them in advance, and victim 21 was one of those cases where I think he was feeding the dog in advance. Uh, there was one victim that had a, a young pit bull that was on the bed with him, and uh, that pit bull was pretty ferocious, but it barely gave even a growl with him, and he picked it up and threw it in another bedroom and closed the door. Dogs would be yipping at his heels as he was approaching the house in one case, and he wouldn't stop. He'd just approach. He got in the window. and Now talk about that's some... why That's why I said this guy was not stoppable. It was like the, you know, the movie Halloween. You throw him off a balcony and look down, and he's no longer there. Right. Well, that's a good that's a good segue actually, because I want to talk about times that he did get away, because that's probably the closest we have to anyone, uh, you know, who who can. I guess all of the all the victims actually can provide information. So, but maybe when he when botched jobs are usually when you get the best info. So, what, what kind of what kind of incidents do we know of where you know he he couldn't follow sure. through on the deal? There's a few where he botched by being opportunistic. One was victim four. Uh, she didn't even live at home with her parents anymore. She was 29, divorced, I think, but her uh, washing machine was on the blink, so she came by one night while they were gone on vacation. She was doing her laundry, and so there's no way he could have known that she was going to be there, and the, the home was on a canal. So he must have been working the canal. He must have been waiting for another victim, or he was scouting the neighborhood. And he saw her, liked her, and he was opportunistic, and he just, she turned around in the driveway while getting ready to load up and go back home around 11.30 at night, and he just decked her, broke her nose, drug her in the house, and did all sorts of terrible things. That's a clue that how he would be opportunistic. Clearly, she could not have been an intended victim. Right. And so he was stalking the area of Del Campo Park at that time. The big botch-up that he did uh, was... uh, Victim 48, his last in Northern California, he disappeared after this. This was in Danville in the Bay Area, East Bay Area. The couple woke up. This was in the second floor of a townhome, which was very unusual for him. He did that only a few times. He struck first floor homes, usually. Uh, Second floor of a townhome. The guy sits up and actually sees him standing by the high boy, slipping the mask over his head. And uh, the the famous composite of the EAR with the mask on comes from this guy. And the guy said, who the hell are you? Started cussing him out, shouting at him, got his wife up, kept shouting at him while he made her run down the stairs. And, uh, and EAR just froze there and looked at him, didn't reach for a weapon, didn't lower his arms, just held his mask, you know, over his head. And the guy finally ran downstairs and got out, and EAR boogied himself and got across the park, got down by Sycamore or something, wherever he had parked, across the uh, park. And that's where he must have opened the door, like a flash, sucked out the paperwork he had there, and he got out of there. And that's one of his big mistakes, and he must have felt it was very significant because he never struck in Northern California again. And this guy described the windbreaker he was wearing, and it had some kind of name stenciled there on in script writing on the left side. This was a blue windbreaker, button nut, zipper, button-down collar, and some kind of stenciled writing that could have been Coors or Corn 
Uh, one detective speculated coach. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. It could have been a name. It could have been a brand. He liked Coors beer, but you would think. And corn goes nowhere. I've tried to track any business could, that could have been called corn. <laughs> I thought maybe Cobra because Cobra was, uh, you know, it's big CB era. And Cobra was involved in that. And, of course, auto wrecking or racing or whatever would have a lot of citizen band radio attached with it. So I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, EAR must have thought it was significant. He got out of Northern California, and that's when he went down to uh, Santa Barbara so he could up, upload himself when he wanted. And a few months later, he's already stalking Goleta. And, of course, he strikes a home that's on a canal. He sticks to his old pattern again. And then his second victims there were very close by yet again. And he starts killing. He enjoys it. I, he, I think his first murder victims were unintentional. The victim, Dr. Offerman, uh, had gotten the bindings loose from the parents. The bindings were only on one wrist. And he'd been shot in the chest and in the back. So he got shot in the chest, whirled around, was still shot. While he was going down, was found on his knees. His girlfriend then shoved her jewelry, I guess, behind the bed. She thought they were being robbed, so she probably shoved it behind the bed first. And he went over there and just shot her in the back of the head, execution style. And then he got out of there because he let off with you know gunshots. Right, right. And after that is when he killed them quietly. He bludgeoned all of his next victims. So it's after that that he consistently murders, whether they're couples or individuals alone, and they were all bludgeoned. So I think he... He got a taste for it with his first, you know, unintentional murder, because everything indicates that he shot because he had to, and then quickly dispatched her. He didn't hang around. And then he enjoyed it so much that he carefully refined himself, and now he waited months and months between each attack. That's how careful he was now, because he knew he was committing the ultimate crime. So it would be months. This, The first murder was in December of 79. The last would be in summer, or was it fall, of... Uh, 81, and then he was gone for five years and came back and followed the exact process with his final victim in 1986. Right, right. We're going to bring Michelle. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed enjoyed killing. It was the new thrill, and he knew it was the ultimate crime, and he took his time now, months apart, not striking a few times a month like he was before. Mm. It was now months and months apart, sometimes six months apart. Well, it's interesting, though, in a sense, too, that the... So we see that he botched the one, the last one uh, in his original area. And, yes, in East Bay. Yeah, and then he journeys down to Southern California and botches his first one there. Exactly, the got away. That's what I'm. That's what I'm. That's what's sort of interesting me here. You know what I mean? It's like, hmm. And then he botches his next one, basically, as far as I'm concerned, because I don't think he intended to kill him. Right. No, I agree with you. Yeah. So he's got three botches back to back, so he's unfulfilled now. Do we know if the people in uh Queen Anne Lane in Goleta um wait, no, that's not the one I want. Do we know if the if the first murder victims do we, do we know if they if the if it came because because they were trying to escape? Well, she was still in bed, so I think he the doctor challenged him. He got loose at one point and bolted up from the bed to get him and uh Got shot in the chest and then crouched down and rolled around to his knees and got shot again in the back. Ah, okay. So, yeah. So, essentially... And she was still in the bed. She was shot in the back of the head laying face down on the bed. Right. 
So I don't think there was like both of them tried to reach up and challenge him. I think uh, yeah, yeah, no, I know the mean. doctor sprung up and, and tried to get him, and it happened rather quick. Right, right. It's uh, another one tried to do that too, and just got bludgeoned. I think twenty four times. It was it was overkill. Well, this guy's twisted, man. He's twisted. Should oh yeah, he's. Should we bring Michelle in? Cause yeah, let's let's oh, I'm yeah. gonna message Michelle. Uh, we're gonna bring. Let me just see here. I mean, he was so calculating in how he stalked the house, but when he was challenged, at least in these cases, he went into a rage and he really just greased him. And yet that guy, in, uh, it, when he was taken by surprise by this big guy shouting at him in Danville, he uh, he just stood there statuesque and looked at him. Yeah. It's very uh, – the whole thing is horrifying. And, and we're going to go into a whole – we're going to stay on this, but – but sort of take it to a different level in a way, folks, because in a moment, uh, Michelle Cruz is going to be calling in. She's the sister of the final known victim of uh, Eron's. I kind of like Eron's, to tell you the truth, but, but <laughs> you may disagree, but I, I feel like Eron's at least kind of rolls off the tongue. But uh, her, her sister, Janelle Cruz, uh, was, was killed by Eurons on May fourth, nineteen eighty six. So as as Gian said, uh almost on the we're almost on the anniversary here. And uh here is Michelle Cruz. Hey Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me over here. Hey Gian. How are you? Good. It's good to uh it's good to talk to you. It's I was saying to Gian, it's you know, uh I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. Actually, uh, hopefully, we're doing justice to this this crazy case. You are doing justice. A lot of details. That's good. Yeah. Well, I, I the devil is in the details, as Gian mentions on his page uh, on the site. Um, and as I was saying to him when we started, it's like I was looking forward to the conversation, but I felt terrible because this is you know such an awful, horrifying, as Gian aptly describes him. This is a villain. Um, yeah. Yes, that's and not I guess, a fun topic. No, certainly not. Certainly not. So, how you you you've sort of become you know you're, you're speaking out here. I mean, you're on the show and everything. So, I mean, how did you get involved in this? Uh, you know, obviously with what happened to your sister, but I mean, more recently, how did you get involved in this in this sort of this new upsurge of, of people trying to look for uh, for justice. And I, I mean, John, you can kind of help her out, too, if uh, if you want. I guess we, could, we can talk sort of now about how there is this growing interest and movement to to get to the bottom of this. So, I mean, yeah. Michelle, you had, I mean, you had no answers, like, for all these years. And when did it kind of come to you that this was connected to this Eron's thing, too? I mean, I'm interested in that. So, I guess, talk talk to us, Michelle. Well, well I think Probably I started getting a little bit into the case around 2009. I mean, it took me about 20 years. I was kind of, um, I don't know, just I wasn't into the case for about 20 years. I just kind of went into hiding. I didn't talk about it. Our family didn't talk about it. It was just a non-subject. Anytime we did talk about it, it was just a big argument. So just left it alone. But then in 2009, someone invited me to, you know, talk on the boards and so I started there, but then, you know, that didn't really do anything. I would say probably last year around March, I just kind of had this epiphany, you know, it's like, God, I, I really need to do something because nothing is going on, you know, it's almost, well, it is 30 years and still no answers. And so 
I started my YouTube channel and I started going on the pro boards and just talking to as many people as I could and my sister's Facebook page. And then when I did that, I started getting a lot of people coming to me, reaching out with different POIs. So I started researching their POIs. And then from that, working with my detective that I work with and uh, um, just advocating, really starting to advocate for the case and reaching out to a lot of media outlets. And it just kind of went from there. So basically, I would say it probably started last year, 2016, with the YouTube channel and then, you know, media outlets and the FBI doing their press conference and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, it's become a massive, massive uh, case in the last year or so. And I I imagine Mm -hmm. a lot of that is thanks to you because you put a face to this thing. You know, in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, you I mean, I kind of, I think I started it, and then Debbie Domingo kind of, uh, you know, she took hold of it as well. So her and I kind of went on it, and then now Jane Carson Sandler is kind of doing her thing, and now there's a rape victim that's coming out, Margaret, and so different mm. people are starting to finally come out of hiding, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Now I assume. Like when all this when all this went down uh, in '86, like I'm sure, like you guys were the your family, you know, you were in contact with the police and stuff. At one point, did it just sort of like drop off where they were like, we 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 we, we yeah. can't do this. Gosh. You know what I mean? I've you never know, met anyone who was ever in that position, so it's interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, the initial interviews with us with the police department. Back in 1986, I can remember being interviewed one time, and it probably lasted maybe about an hour, and it was with a couple detectives, and that was literally right after Janelle was killed. You know, they brought us, brought me into a room and interviewed me, and down at the police department, I guess, the Irvine Police Department. And then my parents, they were in Cancun, and when they finally got home, they were interviewed, but honestly, we never... I never talked to them, my parents, about their interview, and they never asked me about my interview. And uh, and then after that, we moved away. We, we we got out of our house. We never went back to our home, and uh, we moved back east. And we never talked about it again. I mean, it was literally just cut off. Uh, the yeah. police department and they just never reached out to us. We didn't, you know. I think I reached out to them once or twice a year for the next 20 years, but that was it. I mean, yeah. you know, it was just it was really strange. Now, were you, how old were you when this happened? Um, I was 17. Janelle was 18. We were a year and five days apart. So um, I was 17. I was a senior in high school at the time, and I was, mm-hmm. Well, where were like was, where were you that night? Because I assume because this happened at your house. So what 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 happened? Like I'm interested in sort of like uh, the details of of like where where people were that night. Like, did you ever notice anyone had been hanging around the neighborhood or anything? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I had been gone for about a month, maybe two, uh, almost okay. two months, because Janelle and I were really close. We did everything together. Had the same friends, but it was a ski season, snow skiing. So me and some of my friends took off to Mammoth and got a job up there. And it was during my last year of high school. And yeah, it was probably not the best thing to do because I left high school to go work in the mountains. And, uh, but maybe it was a good thing that I did because that's, you know, when Janelle was killed and, uh, I was actually in a 
snowstorm when I got the call. So I, I you know, one of my girlfriends, she called me and uh, told me my sister had been murdered. I thought she said married, and I was like, what? She said, no, murdered. And it just took a minute to process. I don't think I even said a word after that. And um, it took me about a day or two to get home just because of the snowstorm. We were stuck, you know, and, and loads. It was probably one of the worst snowstorms up there, and we were stranded. So I think it was two days before I was able to leave before the snow melted and I got home and my parents still weren't there and probably took them another day or two before they got there. They were in Cancun, Mexico when they got the call. Um, so that's what we were doing. You know, I was up skiing in the mountains. Jeez. That just shows John the opportunistic nature of this guy. Cause he, he probably kind of knew, uh, that you, you took off in a sense and that your parents took off too at the same, you know, it, it, the, that the window right. was there. This guy struck. Well, and my parents. He's been stalking for a while, probably. He could have been, and uh, you know they. My, you know, I talked to my sister on Friday. She was killed Sunday night, early Monday morning. So it was the third. I talked to her Friday the third, and you know the last thing that she said to me was "I love you," and I let you know I said "I love you," and she was just in a really good time in her life. She had a new job, and she didn't say anything about feeling like she was being stalked or watched. But that was Friday night. My parents actually left for Cancun probably Saturday morning, Friday or Saturday uh, morning. Steve. And yeah. she was killed the next day. Friday, Saturday night they heard noises. And Sunday night she heard noises before she was killed. So those two last days she did hear noises. Yeah, so that's, that's his but MO right that, there. I don't know. Right. Yeah. So my parents were only gone for a day or two, and I had been gone for two months. Right, right. Whew. Now, do you you say people said you you must get a lot of these? You say POIs. That's how much you get them, I guess, because I was going to step in, but I'll explain that. That's person of interest, folks. Person of interest. Right. So you you get a lot of these from people. You must be inundated right now. Oh gosh, I get so many. I I can't work. What on are you all supposed them, to do but... with them? Yeah, like what do you? Well, uh, a lot of yeah. people don't know what to do with their POIs. They're just full, you know, and they say this guy's really strange. And so, you know, I'll help them research their guy, and you know, we'll do some background on him and find out the locations of where he lived and if he was in the military and where he worked. You know, in '76, where did he live, and you know, kind of see where the pattern is. You know, down from 76 to where he was up north to 86 and, you know, in the Irvine area, just kind of see where he worked or if he was in the military. You can kind of tell. I mean, if he was out of the country, automatically it's not going to be him. But, you know, right. you can you can kind of, you know, research the person and, and help them out a little bit. If the person seems to be really good and his locations kind of match up and his age and maybe his size and just the different things, yeah. Then, you know, and if he's a really good POI, then I'll forward him over to the detective that I work with. And then she does, you know, more, you know, deeper investigation right. on the person. Who's, who's she with? She the can FBI or the... him. Um, she's with uh, Orange County DA. Um, mm. So, yeah, I work with her. I've been working with her for about three years now. But right now I'm working on two. One's up north in the Sacramento area, and one is actually in 
Irvine, uh, from Irvine, and, and the one one's from Sacramento. Yeah, I'm working on two right now. I, I just can't do a whole lot more than that because, you know, I do work and I have my family, and yeah, but, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll help people out as much as I can. Now, at the risk of, of causing an, a radio fight here, uh, what, what, what's your thoughts on Gian's POI? Uh, you know, his POI sound, sounds good, too. You know, there's so many POIs that can they, they seem like they really match with the fairy rapist, Golden State, because there's a lot yeah. of things, you know, the eye color, the size, the location, you know, so his, his POI is good, you know. And my oh. two kind of seem pretty good too. You just don't know until you get the DNA. That's the thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, if you ever get the chance mm-hmm. to advocate for uh, another issue, uh, I came up with this idea, John. You can maybe explain if I'm if I'm crazy or not. But there should be a law that when somebody dies, the they just take the person's DNA just to solve cold cases and to help people get out of jail. Like there's no, it's an innocent. It, there's no one really is a victim in this, in this uh, proposed law. Someone starts walking right away about their rights. You know, no one. You don't you have know, any no rights cares. after you die. That should be that should, that should be the deal. You <laughs> well, know? your family members maybe they fight for that supposedly. I suppose, but that should but be. Like, I agree with you. I think that would be the ultimate solution to so many of these mysteries and, and vexing cases. Uh, and, I don't know why people would get. Upset, really? I'm sure you know, everybody has to get, get their upset. fingerprints for something. Exactly, and it's we like you're dead. Yeah. You're not going to get. So that way, if someone's like, "Oh, you're going to frame me for something," it's no, dude. We get your DNA after you die. So you know, it's like you're you're judged by the science afterwards, man. So you're. So that's and my. Actually, that's a good one. And then Proposition 69 that went through in you know California. I would love for that to go through in all the different states. That's a hard one, though, but I would love that? for that's where they get the DNA from the people, from the felons, from, from prisons now, you mm, know? Yeah. That was what Bruce Harrington was able to put through is the Proposition 69. That's what he fought for. You know, right, his, right. his brother was, you know, the, you know, Keith Harrington, who was killed, and his wife, Patrice. So that would be another one where they go state to state. Yeah, put a well, lot that's my idea for, uh, I, I teased it on Facebook, like, back in the fall that I came up with an idea that could solve, like, every cold mm. case. Because, you know, I saw right. this, like, thing on JonBenet Ramsey, and at the end they're like, we'll know when the DNA comes through. And it was like, you don't know that. You don't know if you're ever going to get it. So if there was some mm-hmm. assurance, you know, I think that would be an interesting idea. So. Well, that, and then there's the familial DNA, too. So that that's good too. You know, if he he does die and he gets buried and we don't know, maybe one of his family members will slip up. Yeah, I mean, you wonder if somebody like how somebody could keep that a secret. I mean, there are people that lead double lives. I know, but it's like at the same time, it's really. You wonder uh, if someone doesn't get suspicious in the family. Yeah, exactly. Someone who spends that much time on on this, it's like. I think somebody would notice, but and all those compo- well, I don't know how mm-hmm. much those composites were broadcast at the time, but they do show someone who consistently has they consistently show someone who has a longer face and a pointed jaw. Those that are the most reliable. So you would think that someone 
But again, I don't know if how broadcast at the time these all these composites were. Some of them might just have been shown to victims, you know, been in the police blotter, but not uh, a couple of pretty bad ones got in the newspaper. I know that, but that was about it. Now, Michelle, when you uh-huh. when when Janelle was killed, did you guys realize at the time because there was that five year gap? Did you realize that uh, she was a victim of the of the original Night Stalker, or did you just think it was a you know a random thing? Yeah, just a random thing. You know, when the, when they took me into the police department and they questioned me, it was basically you know who was Janelle hanging out with, who were her friends, you know, you give her her you know, names of people that she was hanging out with. You never, I never expected it to be a serial killer. I figured it was probably someone she knew, a friend, you know, that we were hanging out with our age, you know, someone that was mad at her, a boyfriend, you know, the guy that she was with was um, looked into for a long time, but he was cleared through DNA. There was another guy, a friend of hers, you know, a guy friend that was cleared through DNA, but they were the guys we hung out with, people we knew. Yeah. So it wasn't until years later that, you know, when they did the press conference, the, the Orange County Sheriff Department did a press conference in, when was it, Gian? 2001, I guess it was, 2001? They, mm-hmm. Where they linked yeah. all the Sacramento or up north cases to the Southern California yeah. cases. That's when I first found out. And, you know, someone asked me, well, how did that feel that, you know, they linked all those, you know, 50 rapes and murders. Honestly, I don't even remember how I felt because I was still focused on just Janelle, you know. Right. It's just a strange, weird thing to process, I guess. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can't even... You know, as we were getting to bring you on the show, I was thinking to myself, like, I'm not even sure what to ask, but I still have a million questions. <laughs> but, Why? Well, you can ask anything. It's been 30 years. I mean, I have been asked pretty much everything. And, did they tell yeah. you ahead of time when they were going to have this big press conference, or was this like you read it in the paper? No, they did, actually. I remember kind of a strange thing because I started that YouTube channel in March, And then little things were happening here and there. People were finally seeing who I was because nobody had seen who I was, you know. And so then people were talking a little bit more about my YouTube channel. And then all of a sudden, you know, my detective that I work with, she did give me kind of a warning. There's going to be some press conference. They're going to, the FBI is going to put it out there and they're going to put a whole bunch of media attention to the case. And it's going to be June, when was it, June 11th, I think it was. Gosh, I Did she tell you that they had six. figured out that it was linked, or was she like, it's secret information, it's going to come out? Uh... No, this was uh, 2016, this was the last year, the linking was 2001. Oh, oh, oh okay. Which one were you right. talking about? Yeah. I originally yeah. met when they, when, they, when, they, when they realized it was all connected. Did they let you know, or was, uh, did you just find out in the did. newspaper? we got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Okay. No, no, no. They let, they let me know, and they actually invited, you know, Bruce Harrington was there and uh, the other brother, because there were three brothers, Keith, Bruce, and the other Harrington brother. So they were there. I 
was there. They invited us to go, and there was a lot of media outlets there, newspapers and people that were interviewing us. So we were invited, and we knew. You know, we were prepared. You know, it was after that that Michelle started getting hang-up phone calls. Oh, really? Yeah, actually, right after that, within, gosh, I, I don't know, maybe a day after or two days after that press conference in 2001, yeah, I got some hang-up calls every time I'd come home for about a week from work. And at the time, I had two little boys, and I was a single mom. And I'd come home, and it was one phone call after another after another, probably for a couple of hours long. Um, I would say from, like, 6 o'clock to maybe 8 o'clock at night, I'd get hang-up calls. And maybe, I don't know, I can't remember how many. I think it was 10 to 20 calls a night for about a week after that press conference. And And, uh, finally... One, what year, 2001. What, so that was even before this thing became so big. So, like, you, if this was a copycat, it would have to be a real uh, obsessed weirdo because had that guy even oh, written the book yet? No, I don't think anybody even knew that uh, he used hang-up phone calls. Okay. The only Jesus. thing was that press conference, and, you know, because I was in the news, and that's the only way they could have known even about me. So... Yeah, it was a little scary because it could have been the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer, or original Night Stalker um, calling me. Um, I don't know how, who it was. I just know it was a whole week worth of phone calls, um, hang-up calls. They'd listen to me for a minute, and then they'd hang up, or I'd hang up. You know, I'd say, hello, And hello. you never tried to have the call traced? Well, right about the time that I called um, law enforcement, the call stopped. Because uh, I, I was going to get a trace put on my phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yep, right when I did that, I wasn't getting any more calls. So, I think that's when you buy a gun. Yeah, well, I've got lots of security <laughs> now. <laughs> good, good. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, you still live in the area? No. I, I do not live in the area. I live in a different area, and I have surveillance cameras all over my home. Good, good, and, good. Yeah, I've got all kinds of good stuff. Too. Huh? Well, that the only good part about that is that maybe the guy's still around, and we can bring him to justice, you know, because there it, it, would be sort of like, you know. I mean, these things last for a long time, but then they end up, I mean, some of them they end up working out. I can't think, you know, the BTK guy, I guess. They caught that guy, so it's 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 within the well, realm of Well, there's a lot of cases. Yeah, there's a lot of cases being connected through the DNA right now. So I really have a lot of faith that our guy is going to get caught through DNA. And I don't think it's going to be too much longer. It's just my gut feeling. Really? I don't know. What do you think, Gian? I don't know. Having learned the logistics of what they have to go through, uh, if he's dead, it's going to take quite a while because you got to go through more yeah, yeah. channels. If he's alive... If it's alive, then it's going to be easier because all they do is need a lucky hit or a family DNA. Right. So uh, uh, I don't know. It all depends if he's dead or alive. But he's been very careful. It's not going to be easy, I think. He's just been too careful. Mm -hmm. This was truly his hobby. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it'll be a direct hit. I think it'll be more like a family hit on DNA. That's possible, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, they prefer male DNA. I know that. Who's this? The police? The the police, the sheriffs. Yeah, they told me that they prefer male DNA. 
that cries out for a joke, but I'm going to leave it alone. Um, uh, so, so, well, I hope they get him. I, that's all I can say. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's, this, this is really, uh, it's a really haunting case. It's unreal. I'm hearing a lot of door yeah. squeaking. Is anyone, is anyone near a door squeaking? John? I, oh, I heard a door chair. squeaking. It's not here. Oh, Okay. No, it's all right. We've had some weird noises in the background in the past, so we were kind of. That was like, it, it, given the topic and everything tonight too, it's like I keep hearing, I keep hearing like a creaky door opening. I'm like, no. It's my so, chair. Let me get off this chair. There we go. Oh no, no, you stay on the chair. You stay on the chair. His mo was so unique. You would think that if he was striking over the, uh, in some other place, at least in this country, that uh, it would be uncovered. You know, his, his right. M.O., he just did not vary that M.O. He was so, he didn't vary what he said, like he read from a script. And so it's uh, it's just, it's interesting where he could have gone for five years. That's true. Somebody suggested on the thing uh, college, but he would have been pretty old uh, given when he started all this. So who knows? Why would he stop in college, though? It, it's like he, he stopped for five years no, and then comes home. back to an area he knew. Right, right. Like I said, it's not like he he even indicates he stayed around the L.A. area and had incidentally uncovered, you know, other prime stalking areas, which there's many in the whole L.A. area. It's it's He came back to Irvine within a mile of where he had struck before, and by a home that's, you know, there's a park right behind it, then on the other side of the street there's a canal. Yeah. So he stuck to his M.O. That's just where, where he could have been for five years. Yeah, yeah we live yeah. next to, you know, it was just orange groves because Irvine was a new community. And so, really, it was just a lot of orange groves, you know, on the other side of that wall. It, there was nothing over there. Now it's all built up. Um, and then behind our house was the park. So, it was orange groves on the side and then the park in the back. So, yeah. just a, a new community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the house was for sale. That was very common. That homes were for sale. Now, Gian, you yeah. you sort of favor a wreck, uh, you know, a, a, a wrecking crew guy. Uh, but I've heard mm-hmm. also the theory that he's like a that he was a painter or some kind of contractor, which kind of fits in with if they're if you guys are talking about an emerging community. The thing is, mm-hmm. there's also that he could have been with real estate. Why was mm. why were so many of the homes for sale? Well, how did how would that fit? And then, then he started yeah, in new communities. He started with old ones first. Mm, that's an interesting theory too. Yeah. So homes for sale in new communities became his became his mo. Yeah. <sighs> the it's guy hard, that though, I'm you know? looking at and researching right now in Sacramento, he was in real estate, and he's about 59 years old. He's no longer in Sacramento. He's out of California now, but he, he is in real estate. So that's one of the theories. That's interesting, yeah. And your 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 POIs are still alive, uh, Michelle? It, yeah, the two that I'm working on right now are still alive. And uh, th- there's one that I'm, the one that's from Irvine, that's a little bit scarier. I don't even know if he is, is you know, linked to our case, but he's definitely scary. Oh, yikes, yeah. Well, yeah, you There's get, you get shocked at how many creeps are out there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's 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 not funny, but it's weird in a way because John was telling a story and he said it was the it was I think it was like one of the one of the murder victims and he said it was like the bedroom basher. It's like so what what were these like serial killers just running wild all over uh, California at the time or something? I think they were, yeah. The bedroom basher mm-hmm. was active. Who was that? Parker or something? Was his name Gerald Parker? Then Richard Ramirez yeah, was, was soon caught. to be active. Yeah, all of them were caught, but this guy. And the Zodiac. Right. Mm-hmm. Has any crazy person tried to link the two yet? That always happens. Oh, God forbid. They haven't yet. Oh, God, they no, will. It, it's, <laughs> they will. Zodiac was too distinct as well. Zodiac was a heavy set older guy. <laughs> Son of Zodiac. I think they're just trying to link uh, the original Night Stalker, East Terry Rapist, with the Vastalia Ransacker. Right, Jim? What is that? Isn't that what they were thinking? Vastalia Ransacker. What's the Ransacker? Is this like a burglar? The Ransacker, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about that case. I need a lot more information on it. This was a guy that in the San Joaquin Valley of California, there's this college town of Visalia. It's in the midst of all the farm fields. It's an old town. And two years before EAR started, there was this guy that was robbing all these homes in a specific area. And he would, wouldn't steal much of anything of value, but you know, blue chip stamps, and he would eat ice cream out of the refrigerator, but he'd ransack the home, like EAR did, or yeah. would do. And he was never apprehended. He was very clever in his talking. Apparently, well, he didn't have to be too clever because they weren't really chasing him as much as they should. But after he stops in Visalia, the EAR then commences within maybe five, six months mm. in Sacramento. And so there are those who did wish to link the Visalia ransacker, as he's called, to EAR. But there's a composite that's supposed to be of the ransacker, and it's this chubby knock knee guy with a short haircut and that does not fit EAR at all. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. If that is correct, if that really is him. Right. Yeah. I mean, these guys are phantoms. EAR, even with uh, all the composites, it still is this really the one? Because they're composites uh, taken after the fact of someone seen before the fact. No witness, right. no victim ever saw Mm. EAR clearly because he had the mask on. Right, right. And so even, they even the box taking, jobs, they didn't uh, yeah, get the mask these on. These are composites of some young guy seen in the park or walking in the streets before or whatever. And, and it could just be some random guy. Yeah. yeah. It's not even like, yeah. they're not The, the composites are just a, a, of people that were seen in the area, not even like mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, kind of around the time of the crime, but not like... Yeah. Running away. The consistency is that uh, you know some of these guys have a long face, and hair parted on the right. So maybe that's maybe that's him. The Billy Moomy one, as they call it, is the most widely circulated. That because that looks the most fiendish and it's the most accurate looking of a person. So if that's him, that would be good. It's a long face, narrow chin. Uh, the it's it's the one that was taken after someone was seen on a street couple of days before a victim 24 was hit and this is that's the composite right right i assume when you look into a poi it must be so difficult nowadays but it's saying because you really especially with this case you really sort of have to i guess rely on almost like a paper trail and a records trail right i mean how else can to know what this person was there at the time and then they would have been in a different area so it's 
it's uh, it's hard, I guess. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first thing I do is look up where they lived and worked and in that whole time frame in that ten years from seventy six to eighty six. That's what I do first. See where they lived and worked. How do you? I guess is there a way to find that kind of information out or? Oh yeah. Some of it's online. Yeah, I mean, I can. You, you can, yeah. Well, it's. It was also, you know, we were talking earlier about privacy and my death DNA uh, proposal. And it, but it, when you think about mm-hmm. it, uh, it uh, these we were talking about these serial killers running wild all over uh, California too. And it's, it's nowadays. I think this guy would get caught easily because of all the surveillance they have everywhere, and I just think that, that there would be mistakes that would be picked up at the time. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's a good in a sense. I mean, we give up some privacy, but at the same time, it's like this guy's car probably would have got picked up on a bank camera when he drove around the corner or something. So Or he couldn't right. use the phone, the phone shtick today, you know, the hang-up phone calls, because you can get a call back right away, you know the number. Right, right. Because it comes over now. Back then, you just had the old rotaries or push-button phones, and someone called. You don't know what their number was. Yeah, exactly. That's why you don't get a lot of those. <laughs> those don't calls. get the phone calls anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I guess that's one of the good things about today's world is that, uh, you know, these crazy people, at least they get caught eventually. And hopefully uh, with this technology, we'll be able to do it with the DNA uh, evidence. I guess, but what, I guess, how far are you, now, Gian, you have this person of interest, right? Mm-hmm. What do you do now? I mean, I want to get his handwriting. That's a lot more difficult than you might imagine. I, it sounds incredibly difficult, so it's even more difficult than that? Yes, it is, because I don't want to, you know, tip off who it is. He's a person of interest. I'm not going to go to oh. any family member, which most of them are dead anyway. I'm not going to go to some old school friend. Who would you know? Would you have an old school friend's handwriting from forty years ago? I don't know who would have this guy's handwriting from forty years ago. It sounds insane well, to try and chase down. A legal document might have it. Uh, something he might have been involved in, where he had to have a handwritten. Oh, he might have had to write like a witness statement or something. Or something like that, uh, or a handwritten note on an official document that would be in the courts or something over another case. If he was involved the in an accident put in his or... mailbox. <laughs> What's that? An envelope that he put in his mailbox. <laughs> Outgoing <laughs> mail. Take a picture. Oh, that's true. Um, yeah, so it's... it's. So if you get that, then what do you do, Gian? I mean, is there any possibility that... Because you said you got to exhume this guy. Or are we talking about the living people now? Well, if it's a dead person, then, yeah, you'd have to exhume him or get family DNA. But it would have to be, you know, the, it would have to be the handwriting would have to give them probable cause. They simply aren't going to walk up to someone and say, hey, this guy thinks you're your dead brother or dead uncle or whatever. Right, right, right. Was this notorious serial villain, can we go dig up his body and take his DNA? Yeah, exactly. We're going to tell them to shove it. And I suppose it's in the, you're kind of in the same position, right, Michelle? It's like how far do you – I guess you turn it over to the people of the uh, – at the, at the, with law enforcement, so I guess that they yeah, are. Yeah, I turn it over to law enforcement, but I might go a little further than Gian. I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean yes, you don't know? I do give it. 
Well, you know, how far will I go? Gosh, I don't know. I, I do as much as I possibly can legally. Yeah. And that's the rest, yeah, and then the rest I give to law enforcement. Uh, yeah, well, I guess I, know, I guess you won't really know until they tell you, like, hey, we got them or something, right? Let's hope. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to dig into anybody's trash, so. But, yes, I, <laughs> I give them a name. I, trust me, I wanted to do that, but I have not done that yet. So you feel pretty passionately about this person of interest. You're pretty confident? Yes, unfortunately, he's just a little bit too far from me. Um, so I have to um, give him that one to law enforcement. And, and it is actually, they could not eliminate him, so they are working on him right now. He doesn't That's live in the Boston thing. area, I hope. No, he does not okay, live in good. Boston. Because <laughs> <laughs> That's where I am. I don't want this guy putting the yeah, kibosh no. on me. Well, you could go digging yeah, his no. trash then in Boston. That's, well, yeah. I know. You digging anyone's you trash. Know. Yeah, you let me know. Um, all right. Well, I guess I want to talk to Gian about the Bermuda Triangle and stuff. And uh, so I want to thank you for coming on the show, Michelle. I really appreciate it. I'm so sorry about what happened. Um, yeah. You know, I just, I don't thank know what to say. Thank you for letting me come on. Yeah, thank you oh, for letting please. me come on. I'm really glad you guys are talking about this case and getting more people out there to learn about it. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'd say it's my pleasure, but it, it sounds wrong. So you yeah. know, but it was. I really, <laughs> I appreciate your 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 easygoing uh, nature. You know, because sometimes I don't know how. I feel like I fumble some of these <laughs> observations. I know you did great. But, you did great. Uh, thank you and very thank much. Thank you, Dion, too. Appreciate thank you it, Dion. All right. Have a great night. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Well, that was uh, that was very interesting, Gian. I, I find uh, yeah. I, most I, I people think you know, in terms of murder mysteries as fiction, and they they have trouble uh, understanding that it, it's going on in real life. And just like in the movies, family members get involved and want to chase down. I mean, you know, their their loved ones were murdered. Someone, you know, these predators are arrogant. They really target you for their own amusement. But they have to understand that even 30, 40 years later, someone's going to be tracking them. They can't be allowed to stop looking over their shoulders. That's true. And, and it's very few family members that that do that. I know Michelle's had to learn to become more comfortable speaking about it and so well, forth. Well, she did great. She did great. Um, you know, like Not I many said. do that. That's why she's, a lot of these shows happen now because she has come forward to speak about it, and they have someone to use as a focal point. Right, she's the face of this. They don't want to speak to a geek like me. Oh, Gian. <laughs> no, I don't want to be on the tube anyway over this. But they, they need someone who who is who can be the center of it, and you know, family members who are actively doing something, have something to say, and can convey it, are, are very crucial. And some of them, you know, Puck up the courage and 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 start doing this. And it's not very easy. I've I've had to hear, you know, what they have to go through sometimes. Well, yeah, it's like yeah, like I said when we brought Michelle on, it was like I wasn't really sure what to say, but it's uh, there's there was a lot to talk about. It's it's a it's a an incredibly unique experience 
for her, I mean, you know, it's like there's not too many, like I said earlier, it's not too many people I, uh, I've ever talked to who've had an experience like that. So it's, I can imagine that it is maddening to always wonder what, where this guy is and everything too. So, and then when they realize 20 years after the fact that they weren't dealing with a random, that they didn't have to deal with a guy, both Michelle and Debbie Domingo told me that, that uh, I think Debbie Domingo had a an interview in which she mentioned that as well. That, you know, they, you know, until there was linked, they didn't know if this was a personal revenge and they had to oh, look over their shoulders. Yeah. If yeah. someone was going to come after them. And then to realize it was a serial killer and their loved one was only one of several victims. Now, you know, the, the complete arrogance that this creep did this to so many people. Yeah. Well, you know, that it was not just a, a one-time revenge thing by right, right. A, a maniac, but this guy systematically hunted people for his own amusement. Yeah. Realize like, you've got that kind of evil fiend involved. And so it, it's something what uh, Michelle and Debbie have done with the case. Yeah. And as you said, it was on 48 Hours uh, about two weeks ago. Yes, and, and I think Paul is on soon enough. And your stuff is free. It's right there on the website. So That's what it's there for, for everybody to use. To It's the only way I could see to help really do this. A book, you know, a couple of the detectives... As I said, Lieutenant Crompton, Lieutenant uh, Shelby, Richard Shelby also wrote a book, Hunting a Psychopath. A private detective named Jack Gray wrote the book, Hot Prowl. And so the books have been written, and uh, I didn't see how a book could really help. I wanted to get the guy in live action as my investigation was displayed for people and then help significantly, you know, really educate people on just how, what this guy did. Because when I discovered his stalking pattern, when I relived it, first person videotaping it. I have a YouTube channel where I simply walk along with a camera following in his footsteps. You realize what he went through, yeah. what he was, how much he devoted to this, and there was no way that anything but a website could really contribute to conveying to people just what this guy really was. Because you have to remember that he was largely obscure. The true crime people knew about him. But over the country, you know, this, you know, everybody's heard about Jack the Ripper or the Zodiac or or whatever, but this guy who was far worse than either of them put together, and he was largely obscure. Yeah. Well, he's not anymore, and we're coming for him, and we're going to get him. So that's all That's all I'm going to say about Eron's. Uh, and you can read more about it at the Quester Files, and you spell that Q-U-E-S-T-E-R. And don't forget the the, so it's the Quester Files. Or uh, I guess you could probably just Google Gian Kassar, and I bet he pops up. But we're not we're not saying goodnight yet. I just wanted to uh, pivot away from Eurons. Um, do you have anything else to say about this case before we talk about uh, your other stuff? Just it almost killed me. <laughs> How's that? Just from the I I was got so sick during it. I had no idea how much I devoted to it and how ill I was getting. Uh, just trying to figure out where all the crime scenes were. Trying to obsess on. You became as obsessed as the every, obsessive. Yeah, it, it, it does help put the light bulb on every head what this guy had to devote to do this. Yeah. It's not like he just walked up to the house and knocked on the door. He really, and the victims' homes, once again, were just a fraction. He was in neighbors' homes. He was stalking for potential victims. He had alternates lined out just in case the victim changed their schedule. Yeah, he was a bad oh, This guy was obsessive. Yeah. 
Well, the Quester Files is where folks can uh, find out about that, and it's under cold cases. Um, mm-hmm. r- read about it. So, and uh, I'd like to see you on some of these shows, dude. You deserve it. You do an awesome research, so you know you do an I, awesome I work. would have nothing to say. What uh, you know, they need something to film. They don't need a talking head. If someone wanted to come out in the neighborhoods with me, and maybe have, I would instruct. You know, this is where he was. What he had to do. I might do something like that. I went out there for Fox locally for the news. I would go on the news, but for a formal sit-down where they put makeup on you and your talking head, <laughs> what would I say? I mean, what would I say? Just what I'm saying now, and it's nothing It's nothing worth conveying to people. Uh, you, have people that, you have a gravitas that helps, I that think. True crime people do not like that I investigate Kolchakian. Mysteries as well. They don't like. I was going to mention that. that. That's a good like segue. That I investigate the triangle. They don't like that I investigated Bigfoot. Right, right, right. Or these other mysteries. Well, let's. The horror. You're, you're getting into all my mind here, Gian. This is interesting. Yeah, because I. It, to segue into the into the Kolchakian mysteries, the I thought it was. I mean, you've kind of. The X Files gotten into uh the true crime community so it's uh, clearly from what you're saying they're not they're not fans of the Bermuda Triangle and stuff so what's your I guess what's your perspective on all these web sleuths um you know and not oh, you don't we don't even want to go there I mean a lot of uh-huh. them do not like me that's what I figured yeah the investigative what I try and explain is investigative method is investigative method or scientific method same thing it doesn't matter what the object is it is the same investigative process and I seek to answer, you know, mysteries. I seek to solve them, whether it's uh, a true crime, whether it's a serial villain, whether it's claims of, uh, you know, disappearances, of course, you can investigate. They're tangible. The triangle is the one tangible Kolchakian mystery out there. People don't understand that because these planes and ships and people did exist and they are most certainly gone. Right. Whereas when you're dealing with the other stuff, you're dealing with subjective reports. You know, someone claims they saw a Bigfoot, claims they saw a flying saucer. That's all very subjective. You have to even examine footprints carefully and plaster casts and uh, all that kind of stuff. But the triangle is tangible. So I always viewed it as, uh, you know, an adventure. Oh, dude, yeah. With enough sense to understand mystery when you find a derelict vessel with nobody on board. Uh, when you hear a pilot's voice panicking over the radio talking about a weird object harassing his aircraft, and then he vanishes. And I have that audio up on YouTube as well. I was the one who discovered that in the National Transportation Safety Board files. Are these triangle incidents? Mentality? I, yes, triangle incidents. That, that audio I have up on YouTube of the pilot panicking the mayday before he vanished in 1980, he's talking about a flying saucer or a UFO, a weird object. And you found this in the National Archives, you said? Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board has it transcribed in the report. Ah. And the sister of the sister of the victim had a fourth-generation FAA tape of the uh, of the May Day, and she gave me a copy. Wow! Really? Yeah. So I finally put it on YouTube. Uh, Whitley Strever had cleaned it up for me because he had it on his show years ago. When I when I gave him a copy, so you can hear it really much better. That's great. I, I put the words in so you can understand that he's speaking with a Spanish accent, the pilot. But see, to me, that's you know, I'm investigating something real, and it's a question of how you investigate. And you know, I'm not going to 
be out there with these uh, guys with aluminum foil on their head. I wish to find out the truth about these. I'm not going to deny that these kind of mysteries go on. But there's a lot of people who only look at the brand name and think, well, he's he's out there doing what all these other cottage industry cranks do. That's why I valued Randy Randy Wayne White, who uh, who writes the Doc Ford series for Putnam. He gave me that nice endorsement saying, you know, what a danger it is that I investigate this type of stuff, but rest easy, I'm not like the others. I have that on my website. <laughs> I always use that as the, the premier endorsement because I thought he really got it right. That's what I've had to deal with people, just look at the brand name and think, my God, you investigate that kind of stuff. Well, people don't. People have not for, I think, years and years seen someone really investigate these. They hear people regurgitate some narrative, mm-hmm. wallow in this mystery, yep. go out there with field cams for Bigfoot on these shows, or talk about aliens sucking themselves up into some kind of spaceship and giving them the the spiritual vibe or something. <laughs> and that's not what I do. You know, I'm out tangibly to investigate and and find out the truth behind some of these famous mysteries, whether it's a serial killer like Jack the Ripper. Well, talk about or the Zodiac. I devote myself to it. We've, we've well, talked Zodiac about... comes out uh, in winter or fall this year, Horoscope. Oh, I love that, that title, will... Horoscope, yeah. That will be my second true crime installment after Scarlet Autumn. And I and, guess, uh, I don't want to like do spoilers, but like how... <sighs> Let's break down this zodiac. You have a feeling you know who you you have a you have a person of interest. No, I have a suspect now. He's beyond person of interest. Oh. He was the original person of interest, and I followed up on some key points and got into his records. I got some very nice photos of him. I've gone way the distance with this case because this is a case that scared me, and that's why I was so waylaid with it because I knew I had to get this guy's handwriting. Interesting. And a lot of details on him, on his life, on his stepfather. He was actually raised without celebrating any holidays. Is he alive or dead? He's dead. Okay. Amazingly, he lived about five miles from me. Wow. And he died uh, months after I began reading about the Zodiac. I was not investigating. I was doing all the reading first, and I don't consider that investigating. Reading the books, reading uh, stuff online. There were some very good websites that were put up uh, because Zodiac was so famous. Right, right. And uh, ironically, he died in 2010. Damn. Uh, now, see, I'm, I'm. Can we talk about this? This. Can we talk about this? I don't want to like blow your book out or anything. No, I'm not going to mention his name. No, no, no. I don't want to know. I mean, his I name. have. I've mentioned an alias name. I don't. But yeah, it's, no, that's no. not going to tell people anything anyway. No, no, no. I don't want to know his name. I just want to like delve into the details of like how you, how you you, you say you've taken him from a POI to a. Uh, now I'm saying POI. I feel like I'm I'm turning into Joe Kenda. Um, you say you went from a POI to a suspect, so... Yeah, that's a, that's a big difference. See, uh, everybody's a person of interest. Someone turns you in, and you're a person of interest. Oh, believe me, I've been there. Yeah, they're going to check you off the list. Well, you can't check someone off the list, but you begin to get more information, and they fit, and you're you know, a couple of points away from clinching it or absolving him. Now he's a suspect, because you can't say, you know, he, he's now heavily duty suspected, whereas someone is simply, you know... You saw someone in the neighborhood, or you were walking in the neighborhood, someone turned you in, the police come knock on your door. Yeah. 
you're a person of interest until they knock you off the list. Right, right, right. So, no, I've gone to the suspect level with this guy, and I've played it far closer to the vest because of the fame mm-hmm. of the the case and all the folklore about it. That's why I have the website up on Quester Files, uh, the Zodiac section. It was to basically uh, get rid of the folklore about the master criminal that he was turned into like he's Dr. Moriarty and only Sherlock Holmes can get the guy. <laughs> and the book is now putting everything concisely in order without me having to explode all this folklore. I don't want to waste all this time over discussing the narrative and the popular discourse about him. I investigate the case, not the not the not the folklore, not the not the narrative. Now in the right, my own narrative because I'm like a news junkie and I find this funny. Um, are you are you going to have the guy's name in the book? Are we going to see you oh, in the, yeah, his, in the I, Daily I, Mail I, where it's like, man says he solves the Zodiac case. But you know they're yeah, going to no, write I, that. I also <laughs> pro- oh, yeah. I also promised uh, Napa. See, I, I was going to turn him into Napa, and I, I contacted Napa County Sheriff's, and they were, of course, skittish. That was my feeling on it. And they said, please... Uh, write down concisely exactly why you believe this and all the points. And if it's, you know, we'll pass it on to a detective uh, who will look into the case. They don't have someone working it anymore. And that kind of surprised me. And if they find merit in it, they'll contact me. And I thought, you know, I have to give them the silver bullet. That's what they want, and that's only fair to expect. Because detectives aren't historical investigators. They don't want to go back 50 years. And I do. And what's the silver bullet? The silver bullet is I get this guy's handwriting and match it to his letters because the Zodiac left left lots of letters. I think he disguised his handwriting to some extent, but he should still be able in some of his letters for it to come through. And that's what I'm just very close (laughs) to getting. Uh, I think a family member is actually going to go to the military with the, the correct documents, and I'll get all of his records released. All right. so I will know exactly why he was discharged early from the military. It was an injury or a sickness, which... Oh, so you, the, so you say, from, how are you getting these documents? A, a family member in this case, I believe, will be... Uh, they can request, and then they will get everything. The Air Force will not release to me personal things. So what's your... T- what so allowed. Could this be solved through DNA? This case, I know a lot of people think that. The, do, you, do you put credence in the whole stamp and all that? I don't think it would have to because the handwriting is so distinct and so prolific that if I can get enough handwriting, I think that would be sufficient. Certainly for me to declare I solved it, and if Napa wishes to go over my thesis and take it to DNA, the, the stamps are very iffy. Yeah. Could your Could your could your contact related? Could your contact who's related request the DNA test? No, I don't think so. I think the the relationship is too far off, and there was there was no boy, there was no son hmm. in this case, in my guy's case. And there now, San Francisco firmly believes that there are fingerprints of the Zodiac in blood in that cab. Uh, so that might be one way as well. But I'm I'm banking on the uh, I have to have enough to convince them to go further with the guy. Right. While I go while I go to the you know throat with my book. When's this book coming out? 
it's supposed to be fall or winter this year because I had hoped that, you know, it is written. I'm waiting for that final piece. So I have the entire book is written except for the final chapter. And this is what? What's the final? The more handwriting? Yes, the the book, the horoscope is written. The entire book is written except for the final chapter. When I finally submit my thesis, I'll be writing, and then I'll show the handwriting. Okay, yeah. And they'll see his face for the first time in the book. Interesting, from what I've already covered about his life and his stepfather and his mother's many marriages, uh, not being raised with any holidays. His stepfather, who raised him, was uh, an Air Force, was an uh, an aircraft engineer. He had been a flyer during the war. He didn't, he didn't, uh, Christmas, nothing like that. Fourth of July, he never practiced any holidays, never celebrated them. And he became, uh, his stepfather was one of the few people who would have known what a radian was because he was an aircraft engineer. So radian. A, radian is, a radian is that, you know, that unusual measurement of arc that the Zodiac mentioned. Ah. And, you know, it's very arcane, and what profession would actually have to know about that? Well, aircraft, uh, aircraft engineers and rocket guys, because it's a measurement of arc. I had to study what it is. It's how you try and figure out the curve, you know, like a launch, a curvature, and all that kind of stuff yeah. from a certain location. So I'm very confident that I have the right guy finally. And he did have an Air Force background. He would have had the right type of wing walker shoes. He was nothing but uh, basically a glorified paper hanger in the Air Force which is what Marty Lee, the uh, chief of detectives in San Francisco, thought the Zodiac was because he worked with paper too much, he thought. Yeah. And, Interesting. Uh, he w- and he had one award in the Air Force. His short, he was in there under four years. He was, did make lieutenant. Uh, but he had one award in all this time, and he had the expert ribbon in small arms marksmanship, which means he was damn good with a the pistol. Hmm. There are three grades of marksmanship, marksman, sharpshooter, and expert. He was expert. And he was expert. Interesting. All right. Well, keep me posted on when you're going to release this book and when you're going to announce the name, because maybe I'll hassle you to do it on my show first. (laughs) Okay. Unless unless you promised it to someone else. (laughs) I'm not promised it to anybody else. I've tried to be very careful about this. All right. Well, when the book is – when people can get the book and it's ready to hit the the streets, you let me know and we'll, uh, we'll coordinate something. I will do so. Awesome. Now, have you? I guess with the Bermuda, what's the, the Bermuda Triangle? People can just punch in Gian Casar and uh, on Amazon, and that'll bring up the new Bermuda Triangle book. Um, yes, that should be listed by next week or the week after. Nice, nice, and that's available next week, so um, people can search it out. Um, do you advance? I guess I'm trying to recall because we talked a long, long time ago and uh, about the Bermuda Triangle. Actually, we haven't talked in three years, as we were saying earlier, uh, since the Jack the River episode, but we haven't talked about the Bermuda Triangle in a long, long time. So refresh me on what your theory is behind these disappearances. Why don't I give you a copy of my new book when it comes out? <laughs> All right. Oh, how about this? Let me Let me change the question then. Has your opinion on the triangle changed since the first book to the second book, or has your theory only been strengthened? I'm guessing it's only been strengthened because I know how tenacious of a researcher you are, but has anything come up that's made you take, you know, second-guess anything? I've refined it. 
I've, this this uh, installment will deal more with electronic fog, its possible generation, and what it can do. I disturbingly get more into UFOs, which is not a topic I really like. I don't like that culture. Yeah. But I, I bring up all the evidence that links to that. But I talk uh, mostly, you know, the first chapter is discussing the old classic cases. I have to lay the foundation so the reader will understand the significance of the changes in this century. Because mm-hmm. my last book was published in 2003. Right, right. That's what I mean. So a lot, a lot has happened since then. A lot of derelicts are occurring closer to shore now. A lot of interesting incidents closer to shore uh, than before. A lot of uh, smaller boats are involved. A number of aircraft interesting incidents and more information on electronic fog incidents. And then collating all the unusual cases of... Uh, of UFOs harassing aircraft or being reported. Hmm. It's a refinement of all that was without wasting time on things that are simply not possible. I'm not introducing the subject now after 25 years like I was with my last book. I tried to be very anodyne with that and just very Jump right objective. In. Yeah, this is like but Bermuda. This is not, refining. Yeah, it's not just Bermuda Triangle 2. It's like Bermuda Triangle 102. It's like read the first book and... So it's, I guess, people, here's an interesting idea or thought or question, um, and I hope you know the answer to this, because people, you know, they think this Bermuda Triangle thing is just like a relic from the past. So since the last book and this new book, how many disappearances have there been in the Triangle? Because that would be what, like almost 15 years. Oh, I didn't exactly count. I have a record in the book. You I can just guess But I don't list everything, but... Uh, you know, the aircraft disappearances are way down because of the economy. There's not a lot of flying going on out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to average like 20 per decade. And I would say maybe there's six or seven in that period of time now since 2003 that qualify as very interesting. It's it's harder to uncover them. The military has really uh, clammed up after two, 9-11. There's all these restrictions on releasing documents. So I don't have any U.S. military aircraft disappearances in that time. But uh, the majority are oh, boats, true, yeah. a lot of boats, a lot of derelicts, uh, unusual incidents in which blood is found in the boats, dogs found left behind, but the owner's gone. Sometimes the bodies found uh, were some of these all all near the same beach. So it's almost like a, it's like out of Jaws. There's this track line of all these disappearances or derelictions over a few years coming on the Gulf side of Florida down to Key West. Uh, sometimes with boats ripped from their moorings, the anchor is, you know, they're they're drifting, and they, you could tell they were anchored. Their their line was out, but it's frayed. The anchor was cut, or it was ripped from its anchorage, and the person has gone on board, or something like that. Weird. These are all in the new book. That sounds awesome. That sounds amazing, dude. You're amazing. You're you're on this. You're, you jump from. I don't care what the haters say, man. Fuck the haters, as we like to say <laughs> on the show, dude. You're jumping from eons now, blowing my mind on that, to this Bermuda Triangle stuff. So, well, it's 27 it, years of investigating. Oh, we're going to lose the live audience in 90 seconds. So can we just chat for a little tiny bit afterwards? I'm, sure. I'm almost at the end of the, of the sort of, uh, of, of, the, of the, the bucket of ideas here, but I still want to get into Bigfoot. But, yeah, screw those people that, that are in the true crime field that are complaining because it's like they only focus on the true crime, dude. You're you're a multitasker, you know. You're you're not a specialist. 
the real life X Files. Well, a lot of these X Files uh, incidents are very interesting if you if you do it right, if you truly investigate, not if you just want to turn around and regurgitate the narrative. And I have little interest in them myself. Exactly. But I wish to find the truth. Everybody's seen the narrative. That's the little thing, you know, from In Search of. Now, let me thank the folks who are listening live who may not uh, later go and get the MP3. Uh, thanks for listening live. And you can find out more from Gian at Quest. Uh, let me get it up here because it was the Quester Files. Or just Google Gian Kassar. And that's, again, the Questerfiles.com. Uh, and he's got the new book, Bermuda Triangle. And uh, find out more for me at Benal of America, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Thanks to all the folks in the chat room. And, uh, yeah, where is she counting me down? Come on, hon. There it is. So, anyway, yeah, the Quester Files. Uh, where is it? Yeah, Q-U-E-S-T-E-R. Tell me about the Quester Files, just the name, because I'm, I'm wondering about that. The Quester Files, yeah, that's correct. Yes, but where, what's the origin of that? Is this from the, oh, it's, the, the it's Kassar? A, it's making a play on my unusual surname, which most people <laughs> don't believe is mine, but it is. I got tired of putting these other events under the BermudaTriangle.org website. And so finally I, I came up with a title that could make a funny play on my own unusual surname. And I came to be known as the Q-Man or the Quester. Yes, and the Q-Man I've set, seen, yeah. Yeah, it simply said better. I like Q-Man, so... The Q-Man it's is good. You should, people. you should get the Q-Man.com if it's possible. That would be uh, easier to direct people to. That's my yeah, suggestion. I should get a little superhero shirt, you know. <laughs> it's not called that. Superhero of if you get the, Zod- the if, you, if you solve the Zodiac case, dude, you should be, you'll be allowed to wear a superhero shirt for the rest of your life. I, I'll say it now. It would be interesting. Maybe there'll be. So, do you think that? Like I said, you'll be sort of the center of this media, you know. I know I certainly will be reporting on it. So if you – do you expect that there'll be – maybe you'd know in a sense. Like when these things kind of bubble up, does, do they ever go anywhere or does it just like – Well, Zodiac? Yeah, yeah. Like well, if your if book I comes out it, and the Daily Mail and the Sun and all these websites are like, guy in California says he solved the Zodiac mystery. It's, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald. Um you know, and then it's like, who is? You know, you're given all the details and everything. Like, do you think that'll increase the pressure on these on the police to actually do it, or are they just so used to this kind of thing that they'll they're just like, whatever? I'm sure I'll announce it on my website when I'm certain, but all the details will come out in my book. I would dread what some of the news uh, news wires would say. They'd just say this web sleuth or something. <laughs> Found it, like I stumbled upon it. I'm just some geek out there. What would you like to call it? Investigative reporter or a? Uh, what, no, just i Real life Kolchak. <laughs> Q man, I yeah, I'm gonna have to make my own reputation, but uh I don't know. People usually call you a researcher when they don't wanna you know and researching doesn't mean you know how to analyze anything. Yeah, I research call is an like independent a, yeah. investigator. There you go. Independent investigator, yeah. Well dude, you're one of the best I, I ones out to. there, honestly. Uh I, I I've long said on the program that it's like I want answers, man. Like I'm not a lot. I know a lot of people in this field, and even friends of mine, who are like, "No, nah, man, the journey's great." It's like, "Fuck the journey, dude." I want, I want to get to the destination. So, if we ever find an answer to any of these mysteries, I'll be psyched. And you're, you're doing the work here to actually try and solve the mysteries. You're not just like, "Hey, isn't it a crazy story?" So that's why I hold you in such high regard. Thank you very much. Because if you don't, if you don't, at the end of the journey, if you're still, you know, if you're nowhere. 
I mean, you have to go back then, and the journey back is always boring. Right. Yeah. I, I want to go somewhere, and I want to at least get a piece of it. So I, if I haven't solved it, I've at least made an advance that's going to help someone else come along and take it to the next mile and finish it. Right, right. Well, I'm sure a lot of... If I had something significant, what's the point? I mean, there's there's no point. I'm sure a lot of people rely on those Q files on uh, on Eurons because those things are incredibly in-depth. Uh, that's the most popular section of the Quester files. Well, it's like a reference book. It's outstanding. It really is. Uh, it's incredible. It kept me up at night, but folks should definitely check it out. Now, the one last thing I want to ask you about is Bigfoot, because now looking back at your at your sort of uh, your you know your your line sheet or whatever you'd call it, you know your different books, the Bigfoot one still stands out as particularly like unique in a way. I mean, I guess the Bermuda Triangle is kind of paranormal, but the Bigfoot's like straight up uber paranormal in a sense. Now I know obviously that you you. Well, I think it became that way, and that's why <clears throat> I set out to you know the book title is Recasting Bigfoot. You were correct about yes, that. Yes. Yes. And uh, it was a play on, you know, the finding the true footprint, recasting what the true footprint really is, and following the actual evidence of Bigfoot to uncover what he actually is and looks like. And this is a very tangible pursuit to me. I thought it was very fascinating to read all of John Green's old books, how they covered, you know, 1958 Northern California, and they're out there in their scotch uh, plaid flannel shirts and their glasses on like Elmer Fudd looking for what they believed was a very real creature. And then slowly, you know, that that faded away and the Patterson film, you know, there are those who will believe that, but then it, it became so ethereal, you know, you Bigfoot's out there walking with little gray aliens and UFOs in <laughs> yeah, yeah. those backyards. And it became paranormal. It became this huge folklore. And I wanted to find the truth. And recasting Bigfoot took everybody back to the beginning. To the beginning, and I wanted people to get that old vibe again from the 50s to the 70s when all these documentaries were made, and you know, go out there and really look—not just this cheap reality TV stuff with a shaky night camera in a cave, this game, this game trail camera. Yeah, yeah. And these guys that go out everywhere and and invent, uh, you know, they're seeing Bigfoot left and right, and that's rubbish. I mean, the Indians made it very plain in 1847 already that Mount St. Helens was the last home of the Skookum, the cannibal Skookum. And I had to go through all these stories, and, you know, putting it all in context, there's no way you can believe Bigfoot exists over the whole country when he was limited to the Pacific Northwest. And I'm trying to bring back everything to where it was 50 years ago, and we start over again. But we go out and look, and it's sincere expeditions in the old style back then, not in, you know, just a couple of homeboys going out to a campfire. <laughs> a friend of mine was on a radio show recently, and he called most 99% of Bigfoot people live-action role players. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, they, yeah. Well, they're like ghost hunters now, you know? They're like ghost hunters. Yeah, they're, it's like guys that go out to the graveyard and, and are trying to listen to something that will register on a, a meter or a a tape recorder, or they'll see a little whiff of mist or something like that, or hear a creak or a groan. Where does that take one? 
Now, did you ever? I'm looking back here at my notes from that interview on the Bigfoot, and uh, I, I, because I, I was remembering we talked about some tantalizing location, and now I found it again. Morris Mountain in Canada, which is alleged to be the home territory of the feral human Sasquatch tribe. Did you ever find out any new information about that area? Has anyone tried to venture in there, or is there any news out of there? One of my devotees was going to go there, but it it, it didn't work out. I've been so slammed with everything, I've not taken enough time off. Or uh, I really want to get out in the field again and do with this subject what I did with all my true crime. Go out and do all the video, uh, photograph, really start laying out the Pacific Northwest and viable locations in detail with all these icons, all these pages, and people understand very serious approach that I'm looking for more than one thing. I'm looking for something that I think can be proved and that it's a Native American anthropoid, that it is something that migrated up from South America, which is anathema to the Bigfoot crowd. I even mentioned the existence of of a Native American anthropoid or more than one. So not an old world ape, not an old world anthropoid, but a Native American one. Hmm. Undiscovered. Officially. There's a photograph of one. Ah, yes. Maranthropodus loisy. Yeah. Which a lot of my work has been, I'm I'm very convinced that the loisy ape was real and that it is the reality behind the Disonaqua and all these masks, that these beautiful Indian artwork masks. Yeah, I love the artwork of the Pacific Northwest Indians, the totems, their dance masks, they're all very unique. Mm-hmm. And so many of them feature the Zosonaqua, the nude cannibal tribe of the forest, or it's sometimes known as a dangerous thing. It depends which tribe you're talking to. They had different interpretations, but they were hairy, about five feet tall, big hands. And then they uh, they whittled these masks out of wood. Right. It's always shown whistling or moaning, and it has these big this big ridge encircling the eye. And it, in fact, looks like a giant spider monkey. And this is what the Loisy ape looked like. It was an ape version, if you will, of a spider monkey, but it had no tail. And Francois Deloye described them in 1920, this pair that he came across with his men, and they were walking on their hind legs, and they were ripping branches off and uh, threatening, you know, screaming at the, uh, the prospectors. They were looking for oil deposits in Venezuela, and they shot them. And then it took a picture of the female, propped it up on a crate, took a picture, and that's the famous and controversial picture of the Loisy ape. Professor Georges Montanon named it after Francois Deloy and believed it was real, about five feet tall. And it looks like the Disonaqua masks of the Indians of the Pacific Northwest, and it fits their description, something five foot tall, huge hands. It was nasty. It would whistle. These things were known to whistle and travel in pairs. So a new... A new uh, New populations would arise wherever they migrated, and the Maya even had statues of them. So I'm convinced that Amaranthropodus loisy is real and that it is the truth behind the Disonaqua, but that Bigfoot ultimately is something else. See, all these two things, two things, right? Masks, that was the that was the yeah. key thing of your book, I recall. It was there was yeah, that, two that, Bigfoot. Yeah, that so is it's that, and Disonaqua really is not it. All these Bigfooters use Indian artwork to prove that see they knew about ape-like features. So this justified their view that Bigfoot was this old-world gigantopithecus that migrated over with everything else, mm-hmm. whereas the Indian artwork really mostly shows 
a Native American origin. It shows the Loisy ape, the Disonaqua, and the Indians never said Disonaqua was the Sasquatch or the Skookum. The, the white man came along and lumped it all together in one thing, that when the Indians spoke about Sasquatch or Sasquaha George is what they really said, Sasquatch or Skookum or Seotic or uh, Soquim, we thought they, or Desonaqua, we thought they were all talking about the same thing when in fact they're not. The Indians said Sasquatch was more than one tribe in itself, and clearly one tribe was human, they could speak. One tribe was not, but they were very similar. And Skookum itself might be something very different. Skookum were very dreaded yeah. on Mount St. Helens. So there's there's a lot to pick through. And it's not uh, it's not the folklore that we have today. This is from Old West journals, sightings by frontiersmen, records by Indians, Indians artwork. Exactly. So there's yeah. a lot that recasting Bigfoot had to go through, and it convinced an awful lot of people. It blew so my mind. It came to my side. Yeah, it blew my mind. It's still I still well, hey man, I still remember the, the key aspects of it because it was so remarkable at the time. It's still remarkable, you know. I. I, 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 it's it's unfortunate in a sense, dude, because you should be out there more because your stuff's so. I I see why you're not out there more because like the Bigfoot people, the Bigfoot conventions aren't going to bring you in, I guess, but they should be because you're putting out some interesting and unique ideas that are completely different from what. Uh, you well, know, I don't like that though. I, yeah, I know, I know people within the inner circle that do like me. Uh, and they they warned me how I am a pariah. I am the most disliked man in Bigfootery. <laughs> no one will mention my name. I I wrote a blog with that title, the most disliked man in Bigfootery, or the man Bigfooters love to hate, something like that. And that got enormous action on uh, Facebook. They were sharing it all amongst themselves. And uh, but people will not discuss me or recasting Bigfoot because. They're afraid that the fight will break out because a lot did come to my side saying that the narrative is a bunch of folklore out there that we have. We have to go back and I uncovered all this stuff. And uh, and I don't endorse the Patterson film, and that aggravates a lot of them. Right, right. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Your your book really is a it, it lays the case out that the Patterson film was a hoax, and uh, it does a pretty good job of it. Maybe it certainly you know I vacillate all the time on it, and a, a large part of that. Uh, uncertainty well, comes from real. your work. So, I wanted it to be real. I grew up believing it was real. I sat there, you know, the old, uh, the old documentary, Mysterious Monsters, with Peter Graves and those kind of things. You sit there, and Grover Krantz would come on. And you'd, yes, yes. Can anybody, you know, understand? He's telling you the truth about this thing. That it, that the Patterson film is real. But as I, you know, grew older and investigated it more, I realized sadly the Patterson film was not. But I wanted it to be real. I truly did. Yeah. I don't think it affects it in, in, in any way because, you know, it's it's one man's incarnation of it, but the uh, information goes back centuries. And uh, there are those who won't believe in the Ape Canyon incident, but I do. That's where the miners encountered where the miners were attacked in their cabin? Yes, yes, yes. I believe that in its basic form is correct. They went and told the newspapers, all five of them, but later in life, Fred Beck, really, who was the most vocal later, uh, he got into some real strange spiritualism. Weird. And so he thought he, these were spiritual beings doing something with them or something. I don't know. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, folks, there's a piece of the cabin, actually, at the 
uh, International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Is Maine. there really? Yeah, yeah. If you ever get out to I Maine, know someone went up there and yeah. archaeology. They went up there and found where it was, they thought. Yeah, yeah. If it's not a piece of the cabin, it's a piece of the fence post. I'll have to ask Lauren, uh, and I'll tell I people later. I think there was a fence post. Then, then it was the cabin. Because <laughs> it was just a Mystery cabin solved. out of Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and after shortly afterward, uh, you know, there were a couple of uh, rangers went up there along with uh, uh, a Seattle uh, newsman and Clarence Darrow's brother-in-law. His name was he had a Norwegian name. I forget it now. And they they noted what it was like. All the the rocks about, you know, that, that had pounded, been thrown down from overhead, and and so something really happened that uh, scared those five miners out of there. Well, keep looking at these mysteries, man. Please, you know, you, I, it feels like you're feel almost that. at a at, at sort of a, a pause in a sense, though, because like you're, well, I mean, you're you're almost going to shift, I think, now into having to promote these books and stuff because you get the Bermuda Triangle one coming up, and you're going to have the Zodiac one later in the year. But is there any what's percolating on the horizon? What what might you look at next after this? Because like I said, I mean, you're kind of you kind of well, you completed the big uh, the Bermuda Triangle project and the Zodiac project's done. It looks like the the Eurons one is relatively uh, at the end. Yeah, th- so what's next? That will always be on the web. So any solution right. will be just be mentioned on the web, and it will end there. And that section of the website will be used for educational purposes and for a year or so until it's necessary to take it down. But the next actual books, uh, well, I'm going to do the one on. Uh, I've been writing it on. Uh, Amelia Earhart's disappearance. Nice, but I love it. A biography is so hard for me. If I when I get through the first part, which is her life and disappearance, it'll go quickly because then I'll get into all the various theories and how these guys have changed and how a lot of the stuff that's claimed out there was retracted by those who promoted certain theories, you know, about whatever island and try and winnow it down. Just this is to be all in one. One volume, just what is the truth of it? I'm not going to solve it, obviously, because you got to find her to do that. Right, right. Yeah. But I wanted this to be the factual volume everybody can go to. Do you think anyone has come close to sort of getting the story right yet? I guess if you did, no. you wouldn't be writing the book, right? <clears throat> I don't think so, and I'm going to go into that in the book, how one has kind of liberated someone else's theory, what, uh, what the basis was for this and that other theory and so forth, uh, about the islands, about uh, the Marshall Islands, how that really got involved. And uh, it is fascinating. You know, she's she was an interesting person, but she is remembered because of the mystery, despite how some people try and build her up as a great icon of feminism or something. Yeah. What has kept her with us is really the mystery. Oh, there absolutely. There are many other icons who, who died, you know, like uh, Wiley Post and uh, Will Rogers. You know, they died in that tragic plane crash, but there was no mystery, and they kind of faded away. But Amelia Earhart remains with us because of the mystery of her disappearance. Now, have you ever... Enormous folklore that came up afterward. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever... um, I I guess you probably want to give it some time, but have you uh, looked at the MH370 mystery? Because that seems like it's right up your alley. Well, where to go with it? You know, uh, there's so much little information. There's a report now I'm sure I can download. Uh, you want to give it some time? Clearly, I mean, you can get that piece that turned up on Reunion Island. You can try and figure out the drift and and pinpoint where it had to go down. It's a question of how long that thing 
if it made a full circumference of the Indian Ocean, which is, you know debris can do, that's circuitous current there. Yeah. Then it gets very dicey as to where that plane went down, and they found it a long time after. How long was it that it before it turned up on on Reunion Island? Probably a year or two at least. But there's there's so much. Uh, just so little information. Just about what happened. You know, did they all pass out in there and the thing went on autopilot? Uh, was it the lithium batteries they were supposedly carrying? Did it poison them? What? Uh, you don't know. Yeah. You know, they, they thought it was a maniac pilot in the beginning who took them and landed them somewhere, and some Russian spy said, "Oh, they're in Afghanistan in mud huts or something," and now we find out they went down at sea somehow. But something strange obviously happened. That aircraft lost altitude. It almost seemed like a fight occurred on the plane. and but Then uh, it's hard to figure out, but uh, I don't uh, – there's just not enough to base it on. Right, right. It is too – it's way too recent. And, uh, yeah, I mean – The next two books will be Amelia Earhart, which will be Then Came the Dawn is the title. And then after that, it's Amityville. You're doing an Amityville book? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And what was the one? The all-in-one Amityville book. What What was the, go through them again? I'm sorry. Amelia Earhart and then Amityville, the horror in fact and fiction. Oh, okay. I thought there was one in between. All right. Amityville. Well, there is one I'm writing, but I'm not mentioning it because it's that dreaded subject. What do you mean it's that dreaded? Oh, UFOs. Interesting. Okay. Report on the flying saucers. Interesting. Jesus, dude. You're going to destroy all of my childhood mysteries by the time we're done with this. <laughs> but give me all new avenues to explore. I'm interested in seeing what you get into with UFOs because uh, uh, you're one of the few people I would trust to take an honest and unbiased look at this subject and maybe figure something out. So I look forward to that. But be careful, dude. Just like they said about they said that you're the most hated man in Big footery. I wouldn't say that about ufology. There's lots more people to hate, but uh, but it's a uh, it's a uh, they eat their young. They eat their own. And yeah, ufology, I'm going to be as objective as possible. I, I wish to come to the truth, so I will be as objective as possible and leave it uh, to the reader to sum up the data. What is most reliable? I'll put it out there. It's not just going to be a, a mindless compendium. Like oh, I know. Read some of these. Some of these books are very good that are just compendium all of it. I'm going to analyze through just when it started, the behavior. I'll give you this much. Uh, a lot of people don't dwell on, on this fact, even though Ed Ruppelt began his book with it, his report on unidentified flying objects in 1955. He was the head of Project Blue Book in the beginning. Yeah. And he wrote that uh, he was breaking the story that in the that July of 1952, that that momentous July of 1952 when they had the most reports when Washington, D.C. was, you know, uh, conver- when all these flying saucers or UFOs at least converged on Washington, D.C. During that month, uh, uh, an Air Force pilot lost his cool and he fired on one of them. And he, the colonel tried to bust him at the Air Force base for doing that without orders. But <clears throat> after that July 1952, a couple of facts emerged within the pattern. One, uh, these large formations of flying saucers were never seen over land in daytime. Yeah. Number two, the next major encounters with uh, flying saucers by U.S. Air Force aircraft did include lock-ons. Their radar did lock on to a solid target. And each time they got within that gun range, it zoomed away and held its 
held its distance as yeah. though it, it knew the gun range. Playing cat and It was after that that they were always seen coming in at dusk from the ocean and prowling over land at night, and they will avoid uh, at that time. So there's an interesting pattern. After the first time, this was the first time ever one was shot at. Yeah. And after that, they almost seem to reveal that they know the gun range and they know to stay clear of it. Interesting, yeah. July of 1952, July 2 was the last time there was a large formation ever photographed over land, and that was by Delbert Newhouse of the U.S. Navy. That's the famous Utah film. Interesting, interesting. And 14 to 20 of those were in formation. All right, so that's on the horizon, like a UFO. The UFO book is on the horizon, so that's Yes, that, I that, dread that. that. <laughs> well, if you ever need a, a, a shoulder to cry on, you know, you can always reach out to me. You know that, buddy. I will do that. I'll All right. Make sure you get a copy. Awesome. Well, the new Bermuda Triangle book is out uh, next week. It's Bermuda Triangle 2. It's by Gian Kassar. You can find it uh, anywhere books are sold, so uh, search it out and get it. You can read all about uh, Eron's at the Quester Files absolutely for free. Uh, I just I just ran it up on my iPad, and it was like reading a book, folks. Uh, so it's really awesome um, and, and terrifying in, in, in many, many ways. So you get deep into the details of this uh, at the Quester Files, T H E Q U E S T E R Files dot com. And uh, big thanks to Michelle Cruz for joining us on the program. Uh, she's doing incredible work helping to get the word out about the Eron's case. And let's just hope we get this guy. You know, let's just hope we get it. Uh, we, you know, get to the bottom of this because it's it's uh, it's makes me angry in a lot of ways. You know, this guy got away and he's He's still out there, you know, possibly. So, And uh, I can't thank you enough, Gian, for coming back on the show. You know, this is our final season. Certainly not the last time I'm going to be talking to you, but it's the last time uh, in this sort of format probably. So uh, I can't thank you enough for all the great interviews over the years, and I wanted to uh, get you on right away as we started this new season because I know that when we talk, we have these in-depth conversations um, you know, that are just absolutely mind-blowing every time. I'm never disappointed with an interview uh, when I have you on the show because the the stuff is so riveting. And as I said, you have this gravitas in your presentation that is, has me hanging on the edge of my seat, and uh, I know it ha- has the same effect for the listeners. So, um, it's well, been thank a, you for having me so many times. It's always a pleasure to be on here. I It's, it's a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine, man. I'm blown away. I really, uh, you know, once again, you've brought the goods for another classic edition of the program, and uh, it was it was really riveting stuff. So thank you, and uh, I don't know what to say. Thanks again for coming on the show, man. It's been a wild ride. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, there you go, folks. That was Gian Kassar talking about the East Area Rapist slash original Night Stalker and then getting into all of his other uh, topics that he's looked at. The uh, the Kolchak files, as we say, or the Q files. He's he's the he's the real Kolchak, and these are the Q files, um, and just amazing stuff. And uh, I, I think maybe people can understand why I appreciate Gian so much because on this show, we've bounced around from topic to topic to topic over the years, doing all different stuff, and the the quality out from Gian covering these topics that are so diverse deserves uh, commending, and that's why I wanted to feature him right away here on Season 10, because he's one of my favorite guests, and I knew 
you know, BOA Audio has been built on these long-form interviews, and Gian Cassar is among the very, very best for those shows. Speaking of which, we're going to do another long-form show next week, my friends. Just booked this one today. Happy to report uh, next Tuesday night, which is what, uh, May 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to welcome back our old friend Micah Hanks for what's pretty much just going to be a, a jam session. We're just going to jam, talk about UFOs, I'm sure, talk about uh, the current state of the world, and uh, which is crazy right now, crazy. Every time I think it's crazy, it gets crazier. Um, you know, it's. I almost wish we had Jim Mars on to start the season last week when all this uh, Comey chaos went down. But uh, incredibly, it all happened tonight, a few hours before the show started, and uh, that was way off of what we were going to talk about tonight. So we didn't get into that, but we'll definitely get into it next week with Micah Hanks, and God knows what's going to happen in the next week. So I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about. And, of course, as I said, we're going to delve into UFOs. We haven't really uh, done – well, yeah, we did the third episode, so we haven't really done much on UFOs yet. We did, uh, we did talk with Jim about it, but we're going to get even deeper into it with Micah. And uh, I'll bring the goods, and I'm sure Micah's going to bring the goods. So it's going to be an awesome show, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, that's coming up next week, May 16th, Tuesday night. Just pencil us in for Tuesdays for the next six weeks at least, folks, because we've pretty much got Tuesdays locked in at least until the 4th of July for programs, and they're all awesome. They are really, really good. I'm I'm really curating this one this time around, folks, so I'm not going to throw any bad apples at you. And uh, that starts – keeps going, I guess. It started last week with Jim Mars, continued tonight here with Gian Gassar, and it goes on next week with Micah Hanks, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm going to try and get all the linkage and stuff up earlier at Banal of America. Uh, but if you can't find it, just, just keep going to Banal of America. It'll, it'll, it'll pop up, and uh, it'll be great. So that's it. Thanks to uh, everybody who listened. Thanks to all the folks who had kind words to say about the season premiere. Really appreciate it. Buckle up. It's going to be an awesome ride. Until next week. This is Tim Vidal, thanking you for listening and signing off.